Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Carl Weiss. I'm the executive director uh, of the Metro Bureau, and I'd like to welcome you to our 2018-2019 uh, year. This is our very first seminar of the season. Um, we've got some people who are a little bit new to us at the Metro Bureau and some who aren't. Um, so just a couple of housekeeping things first. If you haven't taken, there's two handouts at the front table. If you haven't taken those, please be sure to get those. They'll help you pay attention. Um, also, um, the PowerPoints are all uh, posted on our website um, a few days after the seminar, so keep that in mind. Um, just a couple things I want to uh, mention before we get rolling here. Um, today's topic um, should be near and dear to everybody that's in public education. We've got a lot of things to deal with, and what you're seeing today is a, um, kind of an interface of where um, policymakers um, meet with educators and sometimes the results are not real pretty. We now have a, an evaluation system where um, we have 40% of the evaluation that's predicated on student growth, um, which doesn't always work out the way we think it should work out. Um, recently there's been some issues with that system, and we appreciate all of you taking the time. We've got an expert group here of attorneys and panelists and panelist attorneys um, to help you make sure that your district is on the right pathway here. Um, for those of you who aren't new to the Metro Bureau, you probably recognize one of the panelists over here um, who retired at the end of June, Tony Morasco, but I'd like to introduce um, our uh, my two co-workers from the Metro Bureau, uh, Dr. Greg Barracy and Dr. Nancy Campbell, uh, both also retired superintendents who work with us down at Wayne State. And Greg's gonna make some introductions for you. Hey, thank you, Carl. Um, a couple additional housekeeping things that uh, I want to remind you of that are included in your packet is number one, if you need a Wi-Fi uh, connection, the paperwork is in your, um, your packet to connect to the Wi-Fi. And uh, if you're interested in sketches for today's workshop, uh, the sketch sign-in form is out there as well as the application form. Make sure you sign the application form and turn it into us uh, before you leave. And um, there's also a Metro Bureau feedback form that we'd like you to fill out at the end of the seminar. Um, we'd like to remind you that at 10.15 is our official break, and that is also the last call for our coffee and our, our goodies, if you're interested. And then also, um, before you leave, make sure you pick up a, uh, a copy of our next seminar, which is uh, September 25th, and it is also uh, out there in your your packet. So, um, with that said, what I would like to do is take a moment and introduce a number of the folks that are with us today. And uh, I will start off with uh, our esteemed panel. And um, to my to my to my left. Not necessarily in this exact order, but we have John Plouffe, the superintendent from Atherton Public Schools. John Komet uh, from Roseville. 
superintendent as well. Jordan Harris, assistant superintendent of employee services out of Troy. Sharon Irving, of, um, chief operating officer out of Warren Consolidated. And uh, as uh, Carl mentioned early, Tony Morasco from the Metro Bureau and also um, retired assistant superintendent of HR and labor relations. Just before I came in, uh, Carl was telling me that this esteemed group has over 400 years of experience and associated with, with schools, so we're really proud to have them uh, with us here today. Also, it was 500, okay, sorry, Tony. I'm filling in for, or I, I took over for Tony. Tony does a good job of reminding me, sending me emails, hey, Greg, you gotta do this next, you gotta do this, so thank you, Tony, for that. So anyways, with that said, um, we have a, uh, what we believe is a great seminar put on by um, uh, the firm of Collins and, and Blaha. And um, with that firm today, um, we have attorneys that will be working with both uh, Gary Collins and, and Bill Blaha, and that's um, Jeremy Chisholm. And uh, we also have uh, Jackie Sablaki and John uh, Cava here with us. And I'd like to tell you just a little bit about Gary and, and Bill Blaha. They are, they are truly uh, esteemed school attorneys in, in Michigan. Um, they do litigation and have practiced uh, litigation not only at the state level, the federal level. Uh, they've also uh, uh, been involved in litigation with the Michigan Department of Civil Rights, the Michigan Department of Education, um, also the Michigan Employment Relations Commission, the state um, tax tribunal, national labor relations boards, and the U.S. Department of Education, and they've provided um, consultation and, and services to over 30 school districts in Michigan alone, and I could go on and on and on. So, um, once again, one of the premier school uh, law attorney firms in the state of Michigan. Without further ado, I guess I'll turn it over to Gary Collins. Thank you, Greg and Carl, for your kind, uh, kind words. I walk a lot when I talk, so I'm not going to be behind the podium. I'm going to be working with you folks. The, uh, the issue that we're looking at derives from the change in the Tenure Act and in the school code from 2011. And in 2011, we were worried about this very issue. And what happened, quite frankly, is southeastern Michigan got out-lobbied and outworked by western Michigan and northern Michigan. And there were a number of things that were true reforms if we look at the Tenure Act and our governance of teachers in Michigan. Michigan has the most favorable Tenure Act in the United States. There are only two states that have an arbitrary and capricious standard. Michigan is the only one where it's a mandatory standard. Colorado, you can still use collective bargaining and use just cause. <clears throat> there are only three states that have multiple years of positive evaluations 
before you can be certified as a tenured teacher. Three states. Okay. Of the three states, Michigan has the highest number of consecutive years of those three states. If you, if you look at probationary periods, there are only five states that have longer probationary periods than Michigan. The one area, and it is, it is dramatic for southeastern Michigan, where we had controversy in 211 was taking layoff and recall from the, um, from the Tenure Act and allowing it to go to circuit court. And the impact of that is dramatic in southeastern Michigan. The impact of that is that you have a potential of front damages. Front damages means damages from the point in time of the cause of action up until age 65. So potentially, every employment action that results in a layoff and recall is potentially a million dollar suit. Now we were very active in um, opposing this, our firm was, but quite frankly, um, Southeastern Michigan was out lobbied by the rest of the state. And the rest of the state was not concerned about the liability that we would be in circuit court. Now we did write some language that um, would help us in southeastern Michigan, but it's really limited language. And, and quite frankly, people are over applying it and they're not seeing where the um, weakness is in that language. And the language that we wrote said that there would be no front damages on the layoff and recall, okay? It also limited the back damages. The problem, well, why this was devised in this manner was to specifically stop class action suits. Okay. Two of our clients um, in the past had been hit by class action suits. Um, Wayne Westland, when I think Greg was assistant superintendent, we had a bad class action suit. Um, that we defended at circuit court, lost in Wayne Circuit, and then won at the Court of Appeals. Even when you win, though, you're spending a considerable amount of money to win a case like this. And when you're looking at millions of dollars, you're always having the question, should we compromise this for part of the liability or take the whole liability? The other case that we are very familiar in, and we came in after this happened with the school district, um, was Ann Arbor. And Ann Arbor had a lawsuit regarding um, the ability of substitute teachers who had worked a number of days to be allowed a um, preference for a vacancy. And at the time, Ann Arbor had them sign waivers that's saying, in return for continuing to be a substitute, I waive my right to be a teacher. The problem with a waiver like that is it's not statutorily enforceable. Because when you have a waiver that is designed to waive a right, particularly designed for a certain class, substitute teachers, it's, it's invalid. So what happened in Ann Arbor? $32 million worth of 
damages, 32 million folks. Highest judgment in Michigan. So um, the, the law that has a limitation on the layoff and recall is designed that we're not going to have those huge class actions, but you're still going to have plaintiff suits. And if you have a plaintiff, the first thing they're going to throw in is they're going to throw an age component, they're going to throw in a gender component, they're going to throw in a race component, they are going to throw in a component that does not have a limitation on damages. And that's going to get you to the potential million dollars per suit. Now, the only way that we were able to get this um, language in was um, at the time we worked very hard, we worked with the speaker. The only people that the um, House and Senate Republicans disliked more than education was plaintiff lawyers. And so when we told them that this was going to be a gold mine for plaintiff lawyers, they agreed to put this in because we, at least we have one class of employees <laughs> that they dislike um, more than they like education. Since that time, what we've been working on is basically risk management, folks. Risk management. And what we're looking at is we're going to review a series of things today that are designed to reduce your risk. It's not necessary that you adopt them all. It's not necessary that you adopt them as we're showing them. It's a spectrum that you can look at. But the amount of risk, folks, that you have out there is severe. And the folks we need to be worried about are not being sued by the MEA. It's not the MEA, folks. It's the private attorneys. Okay. And that's what happened in both Wayne Westland and Ann Arbor. And that's where they go after the big damages. If you have an MEA attorney, the MEA is reluctant to try to hit a school district with millions and millions of dollars on judgment. They will look at a reinstatement right to get around it. But that still doesn't obviate the issue that you have of millions of dollars of liability. Also, your insurance will not cover it. Okay? Your insurance will cover a right to defend, a duty to defend, but they're not going to cover millions of dollars on back pay liability or front pay liability on cases like this. So um, that is of concern. A couple of, um, just a couple of things I'd like to kind of survey this, this group in on trying to see what, um, what we're looking at in the way of some of our um, risk management. Um, I'm wondering how many people have formalized a process where if a teacher is going to be minimally effective or ineffective, they're required to notify central office by mid-year. Okay, okay. The majority, yeah. That, that is one protection you need to have in there, and we're gonna go through that. Or the problem you have is you have people, um, principals making decisions and basically betting your money. And so one of the things that, that we talk about with our principals and with our clients is that if it's a performance issue, they should be able to tell central office by mid-year. If it's a misconduct issue, we can understand how a misconduct issue can come up at any point in time. A misconduct issue can lower a person's evaluation. We understand that. But um, under the Summers decision, 
you've got an obligation for an IDP if you're looking at minimally effective and if you're looking at possibly laying it off. The other thing, um, just a, a, a quick survey, how many folks here use a band, if you would, um, a band meaning minimally effective, effective, highly effective, or ineffective, and within that band, do not use a numerical system on your layoff. How many people do that? Okay, okay. That's one of the areas that um, we've been talking about well, for seven years, about not litigating that. I gave a, um, and that is decidedly different in southeastern Michigan versus northern and west, western Michigan. Northern and western Michigan are primarily on a numerical system. I gave a, um, a talk and was working with a county that um, um, north of um, M69 and um, west of Flint, where we were working on a student growth for the county. And I asked them the same question about bands versus numerical. All seven of them, all the seven of the districts I was working with were on a numerical system. So within the effective range, if you perhaps had a score of an 89 and the teacher next to you had a score of an 88, you were going to get recalled above that. After I talked about the um, problems on liability, five of the seven <laughs> changed it um, by the next meeting. There is false confidence from, from our perspective on numerical systems. One of the problems you're gonna see on numerical systems is when you get down to a finite numerical number, you're not even gonna have administrators frequently in the same building giving the same finite numerical number. They would put them in the same band, but they wouldn't necessarily um, um, rate them the same. The other thing that we um, um, look at, how many folks have um, matrices on your evaluations systems where you say, for example, if you have one ineffective domain or maybe two ineffective domains, your entire evaluation is ineffective. How many have that? Okay. That's something else we're going to be chatting about. And John Plouffe here and John Kava won a tenure case on that. And we're going to be talking about that because if you don't use that, you're going to have a numerical, possibly a numerical breakdown. Just for clarification, that speaks sure. to kind of what Daniel was talking about when she said if you're ineffective in one of the areas, you're over, if you're ineffective or minimally effective in one of the areas, you cannot be effective in all of the areas, correct? Absolutely. So yes. We're going to get to that later. Oh, gosh, yes. There's a whole, I'm just giving you a preview. I just wanted to no, no. That we were yeah. And, but, the, but, but the problem you have is you need to lay that out in a matrix. If you don't lay that out in a matrix, you're making a judgment. And that judgment is going to be subject to a jury decision and a determination on that judgment. And I can assure you, you do not want that. You, you want something in writing ahead of time that people know about and that they are aware of. And so we're going to take a look at, at the, um, the issues on that. We're also going to take a look at a whole series of issues that, that basically talk about best practices that, that you may want to get into. Um, one of the issues in 211 um, was Grand Rapids um, 
had a real problem with some of their technology components. And technology does not have a separate certification, as you're aware. And so during every layoff and recall, because they couldn't limit it by certifi certified, Grand Rapids lost all of their certified um, computer program classes because they had people with others tenure taking into it. And so the law does allow us some, some ways to do it. We're going to review that with you. We call it a continuity program, which you can designate, but you're not going to be allowing people to transfer in or transfer out of that continuity program because it's very valuable to you. Um, frequently reading recovery may be a continuity program. Frequently international baccalaureate may be a continuity program. We're going to go through other best practices with you. We will not go through this whole outline. And we won't go through this whole outline because we have five attorneys to talk and we have five people on a reaction panel. And by three hours, that's only 18 minutes apiece. I don't know any of us that can talk for less than 18 minutes on all of this topic. But um, we are going to be having um, a follow-up on one on this in October on student growth. And all of this also lays directly right into student growth. Because if you have a failure on your student growth, you have a failure on your evaluation, you have a failure on your layoff and recall, and you're just waiting for the sharp plaintiff's attorney to try to make money off of a systemic failure. So what we're going to start off with is um, Jackie Zablocki, one of the attorneys on our staff, is going to give a um, review of the um, Summer 2 um, decision. And I, I have to give fair notice to, I was expert witness on Summer 1 um, that got, I shouldn't say kicked, but that part of it. So I am familiar with the case somewhat. And we have both the superintendent of Southfield here and we have the um, head legal official for Southfield here too. So if you have any real questions, you can ask them, but you know, we've read the cases. Anyway, Jackie Zablocki um, was a um, attorney at the Court of Appeals for five years before she joined us. And one of the things that um, we've looked at when we hire um, attorneys is we look at who has been writing the opinions for the judges. And we have found that to be very helpful. On, um, Mr. Blaha recently won the um, open, um, open carry suit um, with, uh, with the gun rights advocates. And um, a lot of humor, and I'll skip in that. Um, but um, Jackie, if you could review summer two with the, um, with the folks. And you know what? Before you do that, I need to go through a couple of quick slides here. Yeah, okay. I need to go through a couple quick slides with you, just so that you're um, aware. So part of the problem that uh, Michigan has is we're aligned with layoff and recall. Okay. So if you're aligned with layoff and recall, a layoff and recall state, um, you're going to find that your percentage of minimally effective and ineffective students is dramatically lower than a state not aligned with layoff and recall. And the reason of that is, is if somebody is minimally effective or ineffective, you risk laying them off. And so you need to make decisions as to how you're going to handle that. Part of the problem, though, is that if you look at our probationary teachers, 
it really does not make sense with the national norms that our probationary teachers are lining up at the same level of evaluations as our tenured teachers. That flies in the face of most national research that you see. Um, the reason why that is, is because we're aligned with layoff and recall. Here are three states that are aligned with layoff and um, uh, recall. Florida, Michigan, Tennessee. You know, those little, um, little buzzing things reminds me of a little um, story I heard about the midterm elections. And they said, what, what group is going to have the highest voter turnout in the midterm elections? And the answer was the Russians. Um, who knows if it's true or not. Anyway, um, what, you're, what you're seeing is the same basic percentage on ineffective or minimally effective in states that line up with a layoff in Okay, It's not Michigan. When, I, when, when we first got this data and comparing it, and we do a lot of research and work in this. Um, for, for those that aren't aware, we um, write the Michigan Teacher and Tenure, which is um, a review of Michigan Tenure going back years. And we also write the Michigan Teacher uh, Evaluation Booklet. Um, we were involved in both the 211 statutes. We served on the 214 and 215 Teacher Evaluation Administrative Evaluation Subcommittees by the House. But, but anyway, when we're looking at these things from state to state, first we couldn't find out why we were so much lower on our ineffective and minimally effective in the states surrounding us. And at, at first I attributed to our labor background. I thought, okay, we got a labor background in Michigan, I can understand that. Um, over time, though, what we found, though, is it's totally because of being aligned with layoff and recall. If you look at New Mexico, um, part of that one? Yeah, okay. We have somebody coming from that game. Thank you. Thank you. I was getting a little whatever. Okay. So um, we'll look over here, folks. Um, if you look at New Mexico, you would have more of what research would say would be a curve on the effectiveness of teachers. It's, it's not totally a bell curve, but it's fairly close to it. Then if you look at New York, and New York is not aligned with layoff and recall. New York, when we first passed um, the evaluation laws, and New York passed an evaluation law, they started off with about the same percentage of minimally effective and ineffective as Michigan did. As they got used to that it was not aligned with layoff and recall, they went to a more normal perspective of about 16% of their faculty members. So just, just be aware that that is part of it. And now I'll let Jackie Zablocki talk about um, Summer 2 versus Southview. Jackie. Is that, oh, there we go. So I guess I'll come stand in the middle as well. So Summer v. Southfield originated in 2012 and it's still ongoing. Um, the Court of Appeals issued a decision this year in 2018 that has significant impact for school districts. And um, I think we should begin with some some background of the case. 
So Meredith Summer began teaching in 1999. So by 2012, or I'm sorry, 2010, 2011 school year, she was a tenured teacher. And during that school year, she was involved in a personal dispute with a colleague um, who was a personal friend of the school principal. So she alleged that she sought the principal's help with that dispute, um, but the principal did not help her. And she filed an internal harassment complaint in the spring of that school year and uh, alleged that she did not hear back about the complaint until the following school year, the 2011-2012 school year. And essentially, the HR department um, did not find that her allegations were substantiated, but um, perhaps the school administrative team could have done more. Um, that appeared to be their finding. So um, in her complaint to the court, Summer alleged that the principal told another employee, you won't have to worry about Summer after this school year. So during the 11-12 school year, her uh, classroom, seventh grade social studies, is observed in February, but she claims that she never got the results. And then in March, she receives her year-end evaluation, and it's minimally effective. Um, she says she's not given a plan of improvement or an opportunity to improve at that time. And then in June, she's laid off. She, um, in her complaint to the court, said that she was the only minimally effective teacher in her building. She's the only one laid off. Um, and despite that, she was hired to teach summer school during the summer of the 2012. So she filed suit with the court challenging her layoff. And um, what's interesting is that she is alleging that her evaluation did not comply with um, 1249, section 1249 of the revised school code, um, but nothing in 1249, which lays out all the evaluation requirements, says that a teacher can file suit if a school district does not comply with those requirements. So that's one of the issues. Um, she also alleges that the district's evaluation was not rigorous, transparent, and fair. And that's language that's in the beginning of 1249, um, kind of that flowery language. Um, and another question is, well, what does that mean to be rigorous, transparent, and fair? Um, that's something that I don't think districts or, or us as attorneys have really put um, thought into that that having actual meaning of uh, specific requirements under the revised school code. So backing up a little bit, 1248 um, is important because it does provide a cause of action. And this is what Gary was talking about, um, the section that could potentially provide for front pay or back pay. Um, and 1248 specifically addresses layoff and recall decisions. And it says that a school district must adopt, or I'm sorry, shall not adopt a policy that provides for length of service or tenure status to be the primary um, or determining factor in personnel decisions. Well, that was not the case here. Summer was not laid off because of her tenure status or her uh, length of service. But the statute goes on to say that personnel decisions um, must be based on effectiveness, and effectiveness shall be based on the performance evaluation system of 1249. 
So it pulls in all of the requirements of Section 1249, which today talks about having observations and an IDP and being based on student growth. So now, um, 1248, which says a teacher can sue if their layoff does not comply with these requirements, um, basically says the teacher can file suit if their layoff is not based on effectiveness, where effectiveness is measured using the evaluation system set out in 1249. And here's that section that specifically talks about the cause of action for teachers under 1248. Um, and as Gary was saying, it precludes class actions, but a plaintiff's attorney could couple this with a uh, charge of unlawful discrimination based on race, age, sex, and in that way they could open up the ability to obtain damages. Um, so as I was just saying, 1249 is where all of the requirements for evaluations are laid out. And that includes these requirements that teachers are provided with opportunities for improvement, that ineffective teachers are not removed um, until they have had ample opportunities to improve. So just a quick comparison between the two, 1248 deals with layoff and recall decisions. It provides that length of service or tenure status may not be the primary factor in layoff and layoff and recall must be based on teacher effectiveness, where effectiveness is measured using the evaluation system laid out in 1249, and it includes a private right of action. So teachers can go to court if their layoff does not comply with the requirements. 1249 lays out all of those requirements that the evaluation has to be rigorous, transparent, and fair, provide opportunities to improve. It now states that we have to have at least two observations, an IDP for certain teachers, um, based on student growth, all of those requirements. Um, there's no specific cause of action under 1249, but you can kind of get it in through the back door for 1248. Um, so as I was just saying, you can uh, bring a private cause of action if a layoff is based on length of service, tenure status, or the use of an evaluation procedure that does not comply with 1249. So this opens up the door for a lot of different challenges, which Jeremy is going to talk about in a minute. Um, if a teacher says, you did not uh, observe me twice, or one of the observations was not unplanned, or you did not um, develop an IDP for me. All of these means that that evaluation did not comply with 1249, and then if the teacher is laid off, they could bring a cause of action. And then we also have these subjective requirements, that it be rigorous, transparent, and fair, that the teacher be provided with opportunities for improvement. So a teacher could say, my evaluation was not rigorous or transparent or fair, and what meaning is assigned to that. And that's basically what happened in summer. So summer was in 2012, and that was before a lot of the specific requirements of the evaluation system was in the law. 
And so Summer said that it was not fair that she did not get the observation feedback from her February classroom observation. And it was not fair that she was not given an opportunity to improve, which the statute requires, um, when she was told she was minimally effective in March and then laid off in June. So the court agreed with her and said that she basically could move forward with her case based on those allegations. And that's significant because the court didn't say who the district should have laid off. She was the only minimally effective teacher, so it's a layoff for an economic reason, presumably. Um, so what, what was the district supposed to do? Um, basically, they, the court just said she was supposed to have an opportunity to improve and notice her deficiencies. So we can look to tenure case law to determine how much notice and opportunity to improve a teacher should be given. In cases of a teacher being terminated for incompetence, the Tenure Commission has held that 30 days notice and opportunity to improve is not enough, but six to seven months is enough. So that at least gives us some idea of how much time would be enough uh, in a case like Summer. So Gary, do you want to talk about these distinctions? Yeah, let me do it. Yeah, the um, unfortunate thing about summer is the evaluation law wasn't passed to 215. And the evaluation law was the one that said you've got to give the feedback within 30 days. So the court was basically retroactively applying a standard that was passed in 215 going back to um, 211 and 212, which we, we, we need to be concerned about, folks, because um, when we don't have our things carefully lined up, we're going to have a problem. Um, yeah, I've mentioned already, tenure cases, all we get on a tenure case is back pay. You know, and, and we've got the lowest standard in the 50 states for a tenure case. So if, if you are trying to lose a faculty member by layoff and recall, you are so much better taking a case on a discharge because you've got a lower standard on the discharge and less uh, other than the layoff and recall. So we have a fine number of um, panelists that um, we wanted to give some reaction to Summer too. And let me talk with, uh, ask Jordan first on, um, are you comfortable with the thought of your current building staff on the stand explaining an evaluation? And Jordan, if you could give some insight into your thoughts and your staff and that issue and some or two and anything else you derive from that. Seems so official with these mics, but. <laughs> well, and, and Gary, you just touched on it and I, I'll, I'll just briefly um, cover another thought I have before, we, before I even get in that question. Um, I started my career with Gary and Bill working at College of Blaha for five years, and I worked six years at the MEA, uh, being one of their attorneys and Uniserv directors before I came to Troy. So I've been on both sides of this issue when this law was passed. Um, one of the, the reflections, I guess, I have for this group that I that, that pieces of advice um, I've heard 
superintendent say it or building administrators say this to me, to your question of building administrators, Gary. Um, they say, well, you know, we, we don't have anything to worry about anymore. I mean, we can, we, you know, we have a layoff, we can make sure we rate folks minimally effective or ineffective and, and we'll make sure they're the first ones gone, not this new teacher we just hired right out of college. That's the one we want to have around and, and we don't have to worry about anything. Um, I've been in groups of, you know, countywide meetings or metro bureau meetings where I've seen some colleagues say that, right? And they say, oh, we got nothing to worry about. It's not a, we can't, they can't bargain it, they can't grieve it, the MEA can't do anything. We've got the law on our side and we can just lay off whoever we want, you know, as long as we make sure we rate them minimally effective or ineffective. And I think my biggest takeaway from Summers is that this is very, very clear evidence that that's not the case. So that's one piece of advice. Um, it's ripe with peril. And Gary, you just hit, you, you just said it. Um, I would never use the layoff and recall law that's been imposed on us to try to get rid of ineffective teachers. We're much better off taking on the ineffective teachers and disciplining them for negligence or for misconduct and taking them to the tenure commission. So that's one thing as labor practitioners, working with our superintendents or boards, making sure that they understand that. Don't, they say, well, it's easier, we can just lay off our five worst elementary teachers if we have to do a layoff and then that's easy. We can just do it by evaluation. We don't have to have a confrontation. We don't have to explain it to the board. I would argue the opposite. It's better and easier to spend some time on the front end taking folks on, holding them accountable, and then trying to get rid of them that way. Do not use the layoff and recall process for that. And as it relates to your question, Gary, um, building administrators, you don't want to get in a position where, um, especially with inter-rater reliability, of trying to justify the ratings that you had at one elementary school versus another elementary school versus another elementary school. What um, the MEA was really good at uh, when this started is attacking, number one, the training of your administrators, whether they were trained appropriately on the tool, what that training looked like, how long they were trained, did the school district, how much calibration did they do with integrated reliability? If I'm a principal, Gary's a principal, and Bill's a principal, um, did they all, were they all trained to observe the exact same thing, and would they all rate it the same? And so you could imagine, as Gary said, your principal is on a stand in a, in a lawsuit, and, they, and I, I was the attorney. Well, when we're uh, going through this scenario over and over and over again with each principal, and slowly pointing out the inconsistencies about how each principal would opine on what a three is or a four is in you know 4D or E of professional responsibilities in the Danielson rubric. You know our principals are not experts in explaining that. So um, that's my reaction as it relates to especially larger school districts where you might have 12 or 18 or 20 elementary buildings. That the standard that we're going to have to be held to is explaining very distinctly and having a group of people be able to get up and articulate very clearly that they can rate, each and every one of them can rate a teacher that they observe exactly the same. Now John's been a soup for 31 years and I know has had a couple of tenure cases involving some interesting things. Coming off of summer two or other observations, what would you share for this group, John? I've kind of lived through uh, a lot over the years, and I've been in front of the Tenor Commission a couple times. Um, I can show you the no longer abrasions, but the scars that existed 
Uh, we have been successful, but we've also been unsuccessful. Listening to the summer decision here, uh, one of the things that I would recommend that the principals do um, is if they feel a person is not going to be effective, is ineffective, that they get a second opinion from another administrator that comes in. If you're in a secondary building, it's very likely you're going to get your assistant to go in and have her or him also do an evaluation. If you don't have a second person in your building, then I strongly encourage you that someone from central administration come over and become involved in the evaluation process. Uh, I am not sure um, if another court is going to say six months is enough time to change. Um, that seems to be what's said here. And I think a lot of this is still going to be determined by uh, future cases. John's point when he's talking privately to me he says these cases raise more questions than they do provide answers, and absolutely. Sharon, you've got your own mic. Okay. Tony's always prepared. Um, I uh, just, you know, just to answer your question about whether or not we're comfortable with our buildings principals ready to handle this. I think um, many of our building principals are comfortable handling EAs. They have dealt with uh, union representation over time as a teacher, so then sometimes as a principal, and they're a lot more comfortable with that kind of questioning that comes into what they do and why. Our principals are not at all prepared for civil litigators. They're just not one bit, and they haven't prepared their cases, their evaluations, as if they were going to be tried. They, um, they simply aren't. And so uh, one of the uh, pieces that we've had to use in our district is uh, many control measures that certainly require the, the building principals to notify us if they have anyone that they think will be minimally effective. Um, if our, we use stages and some of our, those larger school districts may use software to uh, manage their evaluation systems. And those software, that software usually will very conveniently offer calculations so that whoever's doing that evaluation doesn't have to come up with that overall rating themselves, the, the computer will do it for them. Um, that offers a lot of surprises uh, at the end in terms of what those calculations bring. It was one thing when we tried to limit the surprise and um, all of the remedial preparation work that might have to then happen if uh, that wasn't something that was on an individual's radar. With the student achievement piece at 40%, the numbers of surprise impacts of how student achievement now interacts with what those ratings were within the evaluation brings a double uh, level of concern in terms of are we prepared for uh, managing our evaluation process with uh, what it will mean at, the, at that last rating. And so those are some things that uh, we're concerned about. We, um, have tried to do that and make that limit. We've been very successful uh, once we have identified who those individuals are 
and we move through that process with the principal and at the end we've been very successful um, minimally effective ineffective laying them off all uh, without significant litigation at the end um, so it can be done but it takes a lot of care and the larger your district is the least likely or the less likely it is that you're um, you're able to, even as a district who is preparing leaders well, to find consistency on how they look at Danielson or how they look at their instrument and how they look at teaching there with them. So uh, those are just a few things that are coming to us. Give some background to what Sharon had to say. Um, Sharon was involved with a um, lawsuit involving her psychologist. <laughs> basically suing the school district because they didn't think they were fairly represented by the MEA when we laid them off. So they had private attorneys. We now have a um, tenure case going with Sharon that is also looking at a private attorney. And the um, teacher just posted a GoFundMe account um, for that tenure case. But, um, yeah, can't make them up. Tony. Thank you. Uh, I was around before uh, there was anything like this. The hardest thing was to get the, especially the high school principals, to do the evaluations. Um, but one thing that, the first thing that strikes me about the, uh, this particular case, the summer case, is confidentiality. There's a, the line in The Godfather, Godfather Part One, where he tells his son, don't ever say anything or what you're thinking to anyone outside the family. And that's the number one mistake that this principal did by telling another employee, don't worry about this, this person come the spring. Keep that stuff to yourself and to your inner circle. Um, because that, I, that's what that case was all about, in my opinion. Uh, the other thing is, having comfort in the evaluations. I, I hate to say what, what I did, but one of the things that I did back then in Avondale School District, and there's a principal, former principal of Avondale sitting in the audience right now, and he's nodding his head, is that we had a committee of principals who would meet late September, early October, and we would talk about the teachers who were having problems. And what should we do about it? And there's where you start getting other ideas. Doing evaluations take time. And if you don't spend the time, you're gonna lose. You're gonna lose real quickly. So having that committee talk about teachers who are having problems, especially those if you have multiple high schools where uh, we did in Avondale, but you had a high school in the middle school principals we get together and talk about the teachers that are having problems. What are you doing? How did you write the IDP? How long did you give them? That happened in October, not in March. So you had this entire school year to make those improvements. You know, the old 30-day rule wasn't what the 30-day rule is now. The old 30-day rule is any teacher can approve for 30 days. It's what they do the next 30 days, and the next 30 days after that, that's, that's the difference. Well now, you gotta go those extra days because that's what you're looking at and that's the time they're giving. 
So those are the, 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 the big things that I think you really need to take out of this is that the evaluations take time. And I'm not comfortable with anybody in this room sitting in front of uh, a courtroom answering questions about the evaluation system. No one. If you say you are, you're not. Because you just don't have the time. So that, that's why it's very important to talk to your counsel way before there's any liability case. So you know what you can do and you can't do. And remember that it's your attorneys that gotta fight for you. So don't listen to, you know, it's good to listen to Gary, but if he's not your, if he's not your attorney, but, and you have these ideas, you better talk to the attorney that's gonna cover you in the courtroom so they know what the heck you're doing. And that's the best advice I can give to you on any evaluations and in any uh, discharge cases. Put your ducks in order. Talk to the union. Don't be afraid to talk to the union because when you have your ducks in the order, they don't have anything to, to, to say against you. The last point I have is you have something built in your, in your school district and I would be willing to guess many people don't use them as well as they should and that's mentoring. When you're having problems with the teachers in, in, their, in, in fact for anything, whether, whether it be coming late or just classroom situations, talk to their mentor and have their mentor work with them. Too many times we're afraid to talk to the union because they think, we think that they're our enemy. Just because something is a prohibitive subject about bargaining doesn't mean you don't talk about it. You want the entire district working with you. You don't want to split them up. That's all I have. Well, I guess fortunately being the last one to talk, there's not a lot of things that uh, I can say that haven't already been said. Uh, I had the good and bad uh, fortune to be either the first or one of the first districts to lay off based on uh, evaluation ranking. And nobody at that point in time, 11, 12, wanted to be the first, but that was the situation that we were in. And uh, we ended up being successful. Uh, it was the second time that I had been with the 10-year with the commission. First time was as a high school principal, and I learned a lot uh, due to Bill's tutelage and driving points home that I think when I became superintendent, we were able to instill in our administrators related to the consistency and the training. The, the point that I guess I would want to bring out is I have been successful twice in front of a 10-year commission. And with the ALJ, you know, they, they look at the facts. I've been in circuit court once, and we lost that case. And that was not about the facts at all. It's about the attorney attacking what you do, what you don't do. And, you know, our defense attorneys have to depend on us to have done everything right in our processes. Because that's, like I said, the attorneys attack there. But they say and do anything. It's not about the facts. It's what they can convince the jury. And right now, that's not what we can control. So, uh, like I said, I had the good fortune of going before the 10-year commission. But now we're in a different arena with the layoff and recall. 
And like you said, a lot of the things that have already been said about training, consistency, uh, implementing your tool with fidelity and providing the timelines, you know, like I said, we knew we were gonna lay those individuals off in October and spent a lot of time working the, with the individuals October, November, you know, until April. And, that, and I think that contributed. But last minute types of layoffs and weak evaluations, that's not, not gonna fly. Everything Jordan mentioned, Jean was cross-examined on at the Tenure Commission and survived very well. It can be done, but it's, it's a tough row. John, you were gonna? Uh, I was just gonna say that a, a leading Republican from St. Clair, Macomb County, is now saying the 40% is too much and he has proposed legislation to roll it back. Um, and it looks like he's getting support from another Republican. So stay tuned on that. Um, the other part that our board recommend, our attorney for our district recommended is that you have a board policy that describes layoff and recall. And uh, it can't hurt you if you're going in front of a, a court. Okay, Jeremy Chisholm is gonna talk about some challenge points. Got the microphone on here. Challenge points. Challenge points uh, sounds so anodyne. And uh, we've talked evaluation frameworks and statutory structures, and that sounds a little abstract, perhaps. What am I really talking about? I'm talking about chaos. Chaos in the form of a greedy, money-grubbing plaintiff's attorney who's coming after you for that million dollars in front damages that he or she thinks that he can get by making one of your principals cry on the stand, as we've started to allude to. Um, how do we deal with that? Well, uh, as Sharon already uh, had a great line a second ago. I, I honestly didn't feed that to her. It's a great line. Um, she's not even here to hear me compliment her. Um, but our, our principals don't prepare their evaluations for litigation. They just don't. Nobody does. And that's understandable, because the evaluations are supposed to be there for what? For growth, growth, improvement. That's the whole idea, right? As we're here for growth and uh, trying to help people and give people an opportunity to improve and everybody can be brought up and fixed and put together and all of that's supposed to work. Um, so you're not preparing them, your principals aren't preparing them for litigation. Uh, however, in the context of chaos in the form of that plaintiff's attorney looking for the million dollar payout, uh, how do you prepare for and counter that? How do you bring order out of that chaos. Uh, Sharon and a couple others have also hinted at that. And that's what we're here to help you with today, I hope, uh, by feeding some ideas. What we do is start to prepare those evaluations a little bit more for litigation. That's one way of putting it. It's been put already as looking ahead, mid-year notice, conversations, working with legal counsel, all of these things that have been said, and they're all very true. What we're talking about is in the current environment, in the current context of the law, of the case law that's been developing uh, at the Court of Appeals and perhaps will continue to uh, develop, almost certainly will continue to develop, how do we stay ahead of chaos and how do we bring some order and how do we uh, succeed without necessarily having to litigate? Because that's the best victory, right? Is when you have postured yourself so well, prepared yourself so well, 
that you don't have to go in front of the Tenure Commission or Circuit Court or the Court of Appeals to litigate. Uh, we're there for you when you have to do that, but if you can prepare a little bit, start thinking in terms of preparing those evaluations uh, for litigation, you can hopefully avoid it. So challenge points. Uh, when, when I say challenge points, and I've already said we're talking about chaos when we say that, um, imagine that instead of the, the friendly, uh, lovable, reassuring defense attorney that you all know me to be, uh, imagine that I am standing before you looking for that million dollars. I am the guy that's got a billboard and a phone number, and some of, it, some of your teachers have called me and said we were laid off, and we don't think it was fair, we don't think it was right. Well, you can no longer say, ah, you know, it's a layoff, Tenure Commission is going to look at that, and we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that which is all that we've been talking about so far today. In today's context, that means you're going to court. You're going to have to defend that decision, and not that decision, because that's a little bit of the misconception that I want to address. That's what I mean when I say or, uh, challenge points and why it's plural. We're always, thinking, uh, we're always accustomed to thinking of the decision to lay off, and it's got its supporting reasons, but, but the decision is we're going to make a layoff, and that's the decision that's going to be challenged. No, not today. The decision, why did you lay off, is not going to be what's called into question. We're going to talk a little bit for the next couple of minutes about everything that could be. Maybe not even everything. I've only got a few minutes to talk, and there's a long, long list that a plaintiff's attorney could think of. Uh, when a plaintiff's attorney sits down with your teacher who's been laid off and says, tell me about your story, they're not going to hear your story. They're not going to hear about the poor performance that everybody knows, right? They're not going to hear about all the times the principal has had off-the-record conversations. They're not going to hear about all the times that maybe an assistant superintendent has had an intervention and has had a conversation and has talked, or the books that they've been asked to read, or classes they've been performed, or that sent to so that they can gain some training. What that plaintiff's attorney is going to hear is every time anybody said something unkind about them, or perceived to have, they're going to hear about how they are the only person in whatever category, and Gary alluded to some protected categories in the introduction, race, sex, age, more, there's more categories, and some of you have probably heard some of those in, in your own job experience. They're going to hear about, from that teacher's perspective, why they fit into one or more of those categories and nobody else ever has, and why that is probably the reason, the real motivation, that they've been laid off. And then the plaintiff's attorney is going to sit down and start thinking about with your teacher every time that there's been an interaction between the teacher and the principal, the teacher and anybody in central office. They're going to hear about rumors, innuendos, all of this. And all of that is going to be funneled by that plaintiff's attorney into questions that you and probably your principal are going to be asked. So when we say challenge points today, and I've said it once, I'm going to say it again, we're not talking about the point of making the decision to make a layoff. We're talking about each and every decision that possibly could have been made leading to the effectiveness rating is now up for grabs. That's what I mean when I say chaos in the form of a plaintiff's attorney. Each and every decision that was made along the way to assigning that teacher an effectiveness rating is now up for grabs. It's going to be subject for debate and it's going to be subject for cross-examination and interrogation on the stand. And it's not even, it gets worse, not even just a matter of explaining why one person versus another received the rating that they did. Though that can be bad enough, and we're going to talk about that for uh, just a minute. But as we saw in the summer case, unfortunately, the Court of Appeals doesn't even necessarily have 
a better solution to say, well, you should have picked that other person instead. The court might just say, well, we think that there were some problems with three of the decisions out of the 3,000 that went into that, and we think that's enough. Um, not that I'm critiquing the Court of Appeals too much. Um, but each and every decision that was taken along the way to assigning an effectiveness rating all of a sudden is part of litigation. So a teacher could allege that the district failed to provide proper remedial measures as required by law. When I say remedial measures, what's the essence of everybody's kind of basic conception of fairness, right? And this, we saw a little bit of this in the court trying to, as Gary said, backdate some of the more recent uh, legal uh, updates, the, the statutory updates, into a time period when they had not yet been passed. But I think that we see a little bit of kind of a human understanding coming out on this. What's the essence of fairness? But notice, like everybody knows what the rules are, and an opportunity to try to figure it out, and if you, if you make a mistake, maybe an opportunity to improve. Well, that's a generic kind of idea. Well, it gets really particular now, really, really particular, because not only do you have timelines, and do you have a list of, you must have different kinds of observations, and you've got to have a feedback period. What's one way that we can offer somebody an opportunity to improve? Just what's a generic way, a teacher. You're a building principal, and you, you walked into a classroom and saw a problem. What's one way that you can have an opportunity to improve? Go visit exactly. So you could pull them aside informally and say, hey, I noticed you were struggling with classroom management today. Go see Mrs. So-and-so. She's great at that. She's been doing it for 20 years. Talk to her, maybe spend an hour in her classroom, something like that, on your planning period and see if you can get some good ideas. That's a great idea. That might help somebody grow. Is that going to help you defend your lawsuit? Not necessarily. Not if it's not written down. Not if it's not part of a structured plan, as we've just learned from the Court of Appeals at this point in time. So the decision to pull somebody aside and say, why don't you go talk to Mrs. So-and-so? She's a really great example of classroom management. Could, in fact, because I'm not the, the friendly, reassuring face now. I'm the mean plaintiff's attorney. Could, in the plaintiff's attorney's hands, be that time when the principal came and told me that I wasn't as good as Mrs. So-and-so. She didn't like me. I always knew she didn't like me. Every time that you, again, nothing wrong with having those conversations, but every time that you have that conversation, and it's not, again, thinking towards litigation. It's not documented as part of a plan of improvement, an IDP perhaps, which we're going to talk a little bit more later. Um, that can be spun. That can be twisted. If I'm a plaintiff's attorney, I'm going to twist that. I'm going to twist that really hard and say, you always tried to make her feel like she wasn't as good as Mrs. So-and-so down the hallway. Um, another way uh, that a, a teacher could allege that they were not given enough time for the teacher to improve. We've talked about that a little bit. Right now there's this kind of range. We know that from an old case that 30 days is probably not enough. We know for sure that six months, at least as of today, is. Um, is there a range somewhere in between? Probably, but we don't know for sure yet. Something subject to litigation. What about support? If a teacher is going to allege that they were not provided the support that they need to help them improve. So Julie has just identified one great way of support, a live example, a first-hand example of somebody they could go and watch, which is another support that we could commonly offer a teacher in a building. Professional development, go see a seminar, an online webinar, read some books. A lot of schools bring in uh, either permanent or rotating coaches, all kinds of different models. Think about this. If for whatever reason you've got a schedule of 
coaching and you've got people coming in and giving in seminars and 30% of your teachers go one year, 30% the next, 30% the next because that's how you can fit it in, it's how you can afford it. All of a sudden the teacher who's happened to be laid off happened to be one of the ones who's in the third year out. They haven't had that training yet. Now all of a sudden, not only did they not get the training, but other people did. What do you think I'm going to do with that if I'm the means plaintiff's attorney at this point in time? I know this is starting to sound a little bit overwhelming perhaps. I hope so. That's my point because then we're going to lead it into the other esteemed attorneys over here who are going to help you solve this in terms of how we put structure, how we draw structure out of chaos, give this some order. And it has to do with exactly what we've already talked about. Starting to think about our evaluations as if they were going to be subject to litigation. And if you do that, hopefully you'll have such a strong posture. You're going to have a documented file. You're going to have that notice by the middle of the year. You're going to be working with your counsel. You're going to be working between central office and your building administrators all throughout the process so that when the time comes and a layoff is made, it looks really good. And we can get you there. We can get to that point in time. Before we get to that, though, one more scary part. The 40% of student growth, or 40% of the evaluation being student growth data. So how could this go wrong? This could go wrong in a lot of ways, but here's the big one. Here's the big one. If you don't have strong central office management of what each of your buildings are doing, if 40% of a person's evaluation is dependent on student growth, and student growth is not measured in a way that is carefully normed and has high inter-rater, not inter-rater, uh, has high validity between building uh, in terms of the different sorts of assessments that are begin being given, how they're being given, how people giving the assessments were trained to give the assessments. Each and every one of those aspects can be a challenge point, can be an opportunity for somebody to say, that was broken. So for example, let's talk about student growth and how this can impact if it's not immediately apparent. If you have six elementary buildings, and two of the elementary buildings are using one set of tests, one set of assessments for their, uh, their ELA program, and uh, setting aside statutory requirements right now, work with me just on the example, and the other four are using a different one, a different set of assessments. Maybe you have done some homework in central office. Maybe both sets of assessments fit within the range that you say we have enough validity between those because we can compare the research base on these. We can compare how they were given. We think we can defend that. Maybe you don't. Maybe the principals have picked that from the, for themselves. How, how familiar does that sound? That your principals are the ones who are determining what the assessments are that are being issued in their buildings. I see it frequently, though we're moving away from that. People are learning to move away from that. If that happens, then no matter which side, which one of those two sets of assessments that's been used for student growth measurement um, happened to be the one where the teacher who was laid off or was evaluated using that, uh, they're going to challenge the fact that it wasn't uniform across the entire district. They're going to challenge that the principal in their building didn't receive the same training as the principals in the other building and that therefore their student growth measurement wasn't a fair student growth measurement. And because it wasn't a fair student growth measurement, their whole evaluation was fair and therefore they shouldn't have been laid off. So with, um, with that said, hopefully everybody's feeling a little bit anxious unless all of you have already thought all of this through, maybe some of you have. Uh, we're gonna go to a group exercise for a minute. And uh, if you look in your packets, put her, yes. Oh, time for a break. All right. You're uh, saved by the bell. So thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back. 
this is titled as a, a table exercise, but for the sake of time, in, in, in our defense, Gary did give you fair warning, lawyers like to talk. Um, so we've been talking a little too much. So we're a little behind the clock to get through some of this slides. So instead of making this a, a 20 minute table exercise, we're just gonna talk through it briefly, get a little bit of feedback from you hopefully, and then uh, move on to the next section of the presentation. What we've called a dilemma here, um, if you recall uh, from your own day-to-day -day work lives, but also from Jackie's review earlier, the statutory requirements for conducting a layoff and recall that are supposed to be designed to retain effective teachers and that a ineffective teacher cannot be given a preference over one of the higher rankings uh, in the current language of the law. So the table that you see on the screen and in front of you in your packet uh, picture yourself in this situation just for a minute here. Uh, teacher A, they uh, started 9-5-2011 and uh, were placed on an IDP about a month thereafter. So you've got an on-the-ball principal who's uh, seeing some problems develop right away, puts an IDP in place. Where's that? Yeah, a month after the start of the school year. That's that's fair, Howard, yeah. So uh, we went from, uh, the, they're hired in 2011, a month after the start of the current, uh, most recent uh, school year, the most uh, the, the school year just passed, uh, they're placed on an IDP. Uh, they had a mid-year meeting in February. They met with their evaluator monthly to review their progress. They had three observations, uh, which is great. Uh, one by an administrator other than the evaluator and feedback was provided. Their final evaluation rating was minimally effective, and they've had, as we can see with our, our grid there, very good notice throughout the year. Their, their prior uh, effectiveness ratings were uh, effective for the last four years, which is kind of the relevant look back period for the most part. Teacher B uh, hired the same year as the first teacher and uh, does not have an IDP to date at all. Um, there was no mid-year progress report. Two evaluation or observations were allegedly completed. Your principal has told you that uh, he completed two, but it's unclear how much feedback was provided, particularly on the second observation. The principal has rated this teacher ineffective, and they were given their notice just at the end of the school year. They also have been effective for the prior four years. So, a couple of questions related to this scenario, which maybe some of you have lived through before. Who gets laid off? You have to lay off one. Anybody? A. A. Okay. Why is A laid off? It's a beautiful file. Any any other reasons why we should lay off A? Okay. Um, any issues with laying off A? I do. I, I do. Tony. Minimally effective is effective. Thank you. All right, so it, it is designed to be a little bit misleading, a little bit of a trick question for you there. Um, but we do that on purpose because you might run across the circumstance. Maybe you have already. The current statute says you cannot give preference to an ineffective teacher in, in favor of somebody else uh, or at the detriment of somebody else who has a higher effectiveness rating, such as teacher A, who has only minimally effective, which is, as Tony pointed out, an effective rating. Um, it's less than effective, but it's not ineffective. So teacher A has to be the one to go because they are the 
lowest ranked teacher. They're the ineffective teacher. What's the problem? Well, the problems are numerous, right? They're legion because of what I just went through with you right before our break. Uh, you don't have an IDP. It's unclear if there was feedback provided. The Court of Appeals has said that's a real issue. Um, and they received their notice just a couple of weeks ago. You might have lived this circumstance. You might in the future. Maybe you're thinking about it right now. And that's a little bit of the point of this presentation is if we in central office can work effectively in advance with our building principals, who are the ones on the front line, who are the ones that have to spot the problems early, have to put the IDP in place, et cetera, and will be the ones submitting that final evaluation rating. Uh, that if we can work with them and guide them and give them that structure well enough in advance, you can hopefully avoid ending up in this circumstance where you would need to, if you had to make a layoff, move forward with laying off the ineffective teacher. And that obviously is going to be a difficult problem in this circumstance. So with that said, uh, we're gonna, like I said, we're not going to make it a table exercise. I'm going to pass the microphone over to Mr. John Kaba. Good morning, everybody. Um, click through this real quick. Um, items I'm going to discuss are, are working to minimize your liability and preventing legal challenges. And as we get into this, um, just very quickly, um, uh, want to discuss uh, some practical in information. So on the on the Summer v. Southfield case, it reminds me of an uh, issue we had that came up in uh, Bedford with Howard Schwager about four or five years ago. We had a teacher minimally effective at the end of the year. Principal said, this person's horrible. I actually had heard the name of the individual before from a, a previous arbitration. Um, so I was actually, I knew who the teacher was. Um, and <laughs> um, and uh, <clears throat> principal said she's horrible. Superintendent said, this person's gone. We're laying her off. We're in layoff mode. When Tony talked about not only communicating with your legal counsel, but also communicating between your building and central office is important because as Howard actually dug into her file, she had never been told prior to actually receiving the minimally effective rating that she was going to be minimally effective or trending in that manner. Um, and so ultimately, we discussed with the superintendent, we're able to find another position for her because we knew we had potential issues and the fact that she hadn't been told anything. There was concern she wasn't an IDP. Summer doesn't actually say you have to have a teacher on an IDP, but our recommendation is if they're trending that way that you put them on an IDP because that's the best way to lay out with, with fidelity and with things in writing that they're actually trending in that nature and give them an opportunity to improve. Um, and I didn't realize this till today, but Howard and I were just discussing it and she actually improved when you brought her back and she's retiring now, but she actually ultimately, <laughs> yeah, so, so I guess. <laughs> So you agree with the court is what you're saying. <laughs> okay. Um, so a couple of things on recommendations that, that we want to discuss as, as far as minimizing uh, potential legal challenges. Um, first of all, discussing that student growth should be used as a, as a teacher growth measure and not necessarily as layoff, for layoff and recall purposes. 
So what we mean by that is trying to maximize as much as possible the actual classroom observation. So whatever tool you're using, having the tool ultimately be in control of the overall evaluation rating is going to be the best defense. Um, student growth, as I'm sure as you're diving into it, you're actually going to have various growth measures between even teachers in the same building. So you got K-3 teachers that you're looking at some sort of common assessments or potentially some sort of standardized test like NWA or iReady. You got four, six teachers that you're looking at M-STEP. So you're even using different student growth for teachers within the same building, um, which as we're seeing, and, and I know John mentioned earlier, there's already talk in the legislature about, all right, is that going to possibly change in the next year or two, which we know it's changed over the years as we've been going through this since 2011. So allowing those classroom observations and the evaluation tool to control as much as possible um, is going to be the best defense because you're doing a ton of training on that. You're bringing in outside individuals to actually discuss the training with your teachers and your administrators, and hopefully you're talking about inter-rater reliability and those types of things within that evaluation system itself. Um, the, the last piece on this slide is allowing that overall evaluation rating uh, to be effective even if you have some sort of ineffective score in, in one of your student growth measures. Um, <clears throat> next thing, it, Gary talked about assigning an effective radius, rating uh, that doesn't necessarily have a numerical score but you're talking about actually getting into bands. Um, <clears throat> And so when we talk about numerical scores, as, as Gary gave the example, and we have a slide here and a few uh, on, on an actual uh, example that played out in one of our districts, um, differentiating between someone who has an 89 and an 88 between two different elementary buildings is going to be very difficult to defend, especially if you have two different evaluators looking at that same individual. And uh, John Plouffe discussed the um, tenure case that we had. In that particular case, we were looking at just bands of individuals, so either minimally effective or ineffective, which was upheld by the Tenure Commission. And as we discussed, you're going to be in circuit court now, but um, you're still going to actually have the same sort of case you're going to present as to why you laid off somebody in favor of someone else. And so the, the principles from that case still stand true in how you're actually going to present a case. Um, <clears throat> again, as we're talking about student growth measures, if you can actually look at a student growth measure which you believe 90, 95% of your te teachers will be able to achieve at least as one of your assessments. It's going to be helpful. Again, putting the most of the control of your overall evaluation on the actual classroom observations itself and whatever tool you're using. Um, the last piece on this is ensuring that you have adverse effect when you are looking at someone who's ineffective. And so what we mean by that is when we're talking about someone who's going to be an ineffective teacher, Gary mentioned it's almost easier to actually talk about a discharge as opposed to laying off somebody um, because of the standard of arbitrary caprices with the Tenure Commission. Adverse effect needs to actually come into play and you need to be able to prove adverse effect if you're discharging a teacher for any number of things including incompetency is what you'd be looking at if you're talking about discharging because of a teacher evaluation. And so when you're actually going through and documenting the reasons, if you believe someone is ineffective, in, ineffective uh, you actually want to be able to demonstrate that they're ineffective because they're actually having a true effect on your students um, or on the community or something else in your building that's actually affecting how your, your school and your school district are, are operating overall. Um, so I mentioned briefly on, on allowing the <clears throat> evaluation rating to, to come into play and actually control the overall evaluation. And this is a matrix that our, our firm has put together um, and will be discussed in more detail at the October student growth uh, presentation. But if you, if you actually look at how this matrix is set up, if you look at student growth on the left at 40 percent, 
if you see if people are falling into effective student growth overall, and if you look at the top, ultimately the evaluation rating from the classroom is actually controlling the overall evaluation. So if you look, if you're ineffective, sorry, excuse me, if you're effective in student growth um, and you're ineffective in your classroom, you're going to be ineffective overall. Same thing, minimally effective, effective student growth, you're going to be minimally effective overall, and so on. Um, and so this is the types of things that we're talking about. If you can get most of your teachers into an effective range on student growth based on how you're actually looking at those student gro growth percentiles, um, the uh, <coughs> evaluation, classroom observation is going to control overall. I don't know, Gary, if you want to touch anything else on that real quick. We need to spend up time, um, time up front before the beginning of the year on our matrix, folks and you need to publicize this. You need to have a chart that a faculty member can look at and says, if my student growth is X, and if my observation is Y, here's what I'm going, here's what it's gonna be. And that's gonna be totally dependent on the matrix that you decide on it. From this is going to run a whole series of questions. For example, look at, um, by the way, this matrix was totally different when it was 25%. <laughs> we have to change it every time they um, change the percentage. Look at highly effective and ineffective. The lowest rating you're going to come out with is minimally effective, which technically is effective. Um, can you discharge a person minimally effective? Hypothetically. Hypothetically, yes. It's never been done, though. Okay? And you're going to have to get into a lot of adverse effect to show it. The, the issues you're going to have on your bands is you need to decide up front how many and what percentage of your population are you going to have at each growth rating? Because it's really going to impact your, your, your graph and where you're going to be, folks. And that needs to be a conscious decision. You need to make it by central office, and you need to publicize it. This is what won in Atherton is doing something like this. This is what you have to do. Um, you also have to play with your, with your matrix because there are certain rounding assumptions we make on these. We back into these matrices, folks. <laughs> we just don't say, let's throw numbers up. No. We play to get a result. We manipulate to get a result. Our concern is that our people have been trained on evaluation ratings. They spent their life doing that. They're generally fairly good at that. Student growth measures are all over the map. And we have a lot of problems where we have districts where we have people with student growth highly effective and ineffective on observations. Classic example is going to be an AP teacher. Some districts' AP teachers harass out kids that aren't going to do well on the test. Okay? If you, if you look at their growth scores, they're off the charts. Actually, if you took the teacher out of there and looked at the kids just for a semester, and a lot of them, their growth scores would be off the charts. The problem, though, in not addressing it is you might have a teacher who is going to be rated um, ineffective, and your student growth is going to be highly effective. So you need to take a look at that. There's other matrices you have to get into. But this is where central office should be spending its time up front, is deciding these matrices. Any questions on this before we go on? Okay. Thanks. John? Um, so getting into uh, 
assigning an effectiveness rating rather than a numerical score that, that I touched on and, and Gary touched on earlier, um, and kind of just some of the reasons behind it, um, you have some variance in how you actually are looking at teachers at that point. So again, you can look at two minimally effective teachers, and you can still have conversations over, okay, does one have additional discipline? Does one have further attendance issues? Um, so you can get into some of the, the distinguishing factors other than just a numerical score and that someone has an 89 and someone has an 87. Uh, and so you can bring in the other pieces of the law that you're required to look at now um, if it isn't already come into effect with the way you're actually looking at evaluations overall, if, it, if you haven't already looked at discipline or attendance or those types of things prior to giving an, an overall evaluation rating. Um, the other piece is that it really reduces the errors that you have within a rate of reliability. And so the larger your district, obviously the more evaluators you're going to have, especially at the elementary level where you have multiple elementary buildings. Um, and so looking at just minimally effective teachers, are minimally effective teachers effective or effective teachers? And then you can get into some of the dis distinguishing factors again. And that's where you loop in central office um, and start having those conversations. Okay, what does our personnel file look like? Looking at ASOP or whatever your, your uh, system is for, for looking at attendance and those types of things. Um, this is really going back to minimizing liability. This is going to be easier for us to defend or whoever your legal counsel is. It's, it's going to be easier to defend these types of things as opposed to distinguishing, all right, again, someone has one score versus another score. And when, when we had the case in Atherton, um, and again, we'll discuss it in a little more detail, but we actually had principals on the stand for several hours and through a lunch period and, and on to the next day. Um, and those principals had to walk through step by step every single thing they did in their observation. Um, and we were just talking about discussing teachers that are either minimally effective or ineffective. We weren't even getting into the details on an actual score. Uh, and, and so laying out those, those facts were very important. And if you actually had to defend a score as opposed to just a band rating, it's going to be talking about days of testimony if you're actually in that position. And it's not a position you want to be in because the law allows you to do it in this manner. Um, again, this is just a quick uh, pictorial of the original uh, bill that was proposed stated that you would have to have um, layoff and recall decisions based on effectiveness, which would require a serial ranking. The law that was ultimately passed state, stated that layoff and recall decisions are based on retaining effective teachers, which allow you, allows you to put those teachers into those bands that we're talking about, so just having the four bands and then looking at, at factors after that. Um, Again, just a quick pictorial example of um, on the left you have just if you're strictly looking at numerical scores, you're going to have the teacher who has a 66 laid off before anyone else and so on, where if you're using bands on the right side, um, you can flip B and A um, even though in the, on the left, B had a 72. B could be laid off first if there's a discipline issue, an attendance issue, those types of things. Yes? In our teacher um, evaluation handbook, we have language that states that um, if we have teachers in those bands or silos, as we refer to them as, that we place emphasis on the professional practice rating. Is that okay? When you say the professional practice rating, what, what is percent rating. So if, so if we looked at teacher A and B, mm -hmm. we would the next step would be then to look at what their professional practice rating, and if one had a lower professional practice rating than the other without taking any student growth component, then that is the factor that we would use to then choose that person for the layoff. So in other words, step two is placing a heavier emphasis on the, the, the classroom observations and not necessarily student growth. Which uh, instrument are you using? 
Yeah. So one of the problems you're going to have on that is it's still going to be subjective. And what you're trying to get away from is your subjective judgments within a band. Because um, if I was to ask a series of administrators, who are the three worst teachers out of 100, I could generally get agreement. If I was to ask them, who are the worst 10, I've never been able to get agreement. The subjectivity you're having on that is still going to be problematic. Um, would I recommend it? No. With the net professional practice, are you looking at things like discipline and attendance? Does that come into play there? No, that's part of the 5D model. That comes in the summative rating, so that's the 1249. 48, yeah. So, and that's where you want to start distinguishing the professional practices. Again, is because of the subjectivity, it's going to potentially get you into some some questions in in litigation. Yes. So you would say go to those those, those factors like what we would suggest is that you have specific rubrics that would say, for example, um, if you had been minimally effective in the last three years, you're going to have a lower priority than something else. The problem you've got with attendance is you got a, a whole ADA compliance issue on it, and you got a FIMLA. Um, I wrote that part of the statute, and we had to write it that way because we couldn't get the legislature to agree on what the tenure standard was, was um, a physical discharge, medical discharge. Okay, so they said attendance. If you're going to use attendance as a factor in most of our districts, we recommend that it almost be to a level of something less than a medical discharge. In other words, I'm not going to differentiate between a teacher who has gone eight days and 15 days. That's episodic, that's one year, part of it could be FEMLA. If I have a teacher who is absent once every two weeks, that's when I'm going to start taking a look at it. You, you want to, when you're looking at tying factors, the only thing we really look at generally is discipline. And we would have a rubric would say, if you have a reprimand, here is what happens on your overall rating. You would not have above this or below this. Um, the problem that you get into other issues, at least right now, is I haven't seen the data to support things enough that I'd want to go in front of a jury. So. Other questions? So all things to be the same. They're in the same bands. There are no BB vectors that take effect because they're essentially the same. We then use uh, support. Within the band, yeah. Yes, yes. You still control how many teachers you're going to have within the band. And you can differentiate. Generally, we don't have a problem differentiating between a minimally effective teacher and an effective teacher. I mean, that's, I don't want to say it's day and night, but it's fairly easy as long as you do it. The other thing within the bands, and uh, we're not going to have time to go through it here, is what we call um, continuity programs, which I mentioned before, where you can segregate certain programs you're not going to allow people to be um, taken out of. And it depends on the amount of work or time you've placed in a certain program. You can possibly do that. Um, another issue you're going to have is going to be on student growth, is how you do your student growth. Our clients are all over the map on that. I mean, that is, we're going to do a different se seminar on that. That's a walking minefield, folks. Is continuity, is continuity 
Well, if you if you if you look at the statute, um, where it goes right below the BB factors, yes, it talks about that extra training, extra whatever, which would be a part of a continuity factor, which would be like IB or readings that or whatever. Yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah, we got problems. Yeah. We're going to be using old data. We call it lagging data. Yeah, I'm, I'm joking. Yes, no. Um, it's a state statute. We have to comply. It's going to be uniform. Um, we've got to do it. And so is it a potential challenge? Yes. Do we have to do it? Yes. What about the fact that we have to use a three-year average when available? And if we have teacher A that we only have one year data on, it's not available. It's not available. Right. Because they're a new teacher. And if they've only been there two years, you only use two years. Right. No. 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 <laughs> Have I had that question asked before? <laughs> yes. Um, the questions you're going to have to have to look up, and um, I'm assuming you're talking about a secondary school. Yeah, you're going to have to look at um, some standards. Probably going to have to look at some common assessments um, that are going to have to be uniform, and then you you may have to look at. And there's a lot of problems with it. Um, looking at building-wide scores. The, the problem you have on building-wide scores or grade scores is the Ball Commission specifically says they do not want that to be more than 10% of a teacher's evaluation. What we're trying, yes, thank you. Yes, so um, what we're trying to do, pardon? Whoa, that's right, that's exactly it. Right. So what, what, what we're talking, and we're going to get into our um, um, next seminar, is that um, you really have to look at a multi-year plan. Because we think we could defend a school district that says we have this data at this point in time. We are working to develop this data. I think a, I think a court would give deference to that. Okay? I don't think a court would give deference saying, yeah, this is where we are, and this is where we're going to stay. You're going to have a hard time on that. Yes? Can you explain about the You're going to have a uniformity issue. And the, the, the way you probably want to take a look at that, and I don't see how a lot of districts are going to be in anything other than minimal compliance this year. And I'm underlying minimal. <laughs> I'm exaggerating minimal. Um, if you have multiple growth measures um, going beyond two, you're getting into three or four, you could make an argument that off of one um, menu, they could use a type of SLO that is looking at those students. 
when you have an SLO that's basically going to be 20% of their evaluation, and they can pick it, and you've got different issues, potentially you've got problems with that. Now, do you have any way of getting it out, out of it this year? With most of my clients, the answer is no. We're going to work through it. We're going to do it multi-year. But I would not want to base a, um, a case three years from now that doesn't have some uniformity or some minimization of those slows that are on separate standards. Does that answer your question? Okay. So the issue with that is then the basis of a slow is that they're writing that for the strengths and weaknesses of the children in front of them. So if there's Correct. uniformity amongst, needed amongst the slows, then they're not taking into consideration the unique needs of the children that they're not only, not only that, you're going to get teachers transferring or trying to get into systems where they can get students that they can more easily adapt to, and it's going to totally defeat our placement process. Um, so, I mean, I mean, I think we've got to look at both trends. I think we can look at slows because it's very helpful, but the only way I see we're going to be able to do it is, is have it be a smaller portion of the, um, okay, yeah, yeah, get it down quite a bit. Um, so, as I uh, discussed earlier, in order to discharge a teacher for incompetency, um, you have to demonstrate that the teacher, uh, their, their incompetence had some sort of adverse effect uh, on the students, the staff, or the school community. Um, and the Tenure Commission has gone on to explain that the focus in a competency case is on the teacher's ability to foster the student's interests uh, in the subject matter and to communicate the, the concepts clearly and to, to establish an environment that's conducive to learning. Um, Tenure Commission has also said that um, <clears throat> lack of uh, student growth does not necessarily demonstrate that a teacher is incompetent. And so that's why we're looking at things at kind of a multiple levels here. We've got student growth coming in at 40% as part of our evaluation system. That doesn't automatically mean, though, that a student, or excuse me, a teacher is incompetent. And so that's, again, why at this point we're recommending that as much as possible whatever your evaluation tool is that you're using is going to control the overall evaluation rating because the student growth itself is not going to demonstrate and, and be sufficient to demonstrate a, a discharge case in front of the Tenure Commission for incompetency. Um, and so again, making sure that when you're looking at the 60% of your evaluation from those evaluation tools that you're actually identifying items that clearly have an adverse effect on your school, your district, or your community. <coughs> yes. I have a question, and it has to do with board policy. It's been recommended by a lot that you have a board policy on layoff and recall. How important is it to include all those other variables, such as attendance, discipline, extracurricular activities, in your board policy when writing th that? And so, so making sure you're laying out whatever you're using is extremely important. So that's, again, going back to the summer case and going back to the case that we had in Atherton, um, one of the big items was laying out notice for the teachers to actually have an awareness of what they're being evaluated on. And so if you don't have it in your policy and all of a sudden you want to use discipline um, and it's not written down anywhere and teachers don't know about it, it's in the statute now, but still, you want to make sure you actually have detailed items in your policy or your admin regulations that lay out how you're actually going to determine a layoff or determine in a competency case if, it's, if you're actually using those, those factors in an evaluation tool. So actually, your teacher evaluation policies and regulations are going to go hand in hand to some extent with your layoff and recall regulations. Um, and 
in the Atherton case, we laid all those things out, I think, on October 1st is when we got them out to all the teachers, or John got them out to all the teachers. Um, so they were fully aware of the, the fact that they were going to be evaluated based on the Danielson model and that they were going to be evaluated in a manner that if they were ineffective in any one of the domains, they were ineffective overall. And that's part of the reason we ended up winning that case was because ALJ said, yep, they got notice October 1st. A teacher decided not to tune in, turn in student growth data. That's her problem. That's essentially what the ruling was. Um, and, and, but it was, it was all about actually getting that notice out um, and, and making sure people were aware of it. Answer your question? Uh, yep. Generally speaking, I mean, the, the board policies having the, what I call the, the skeletal framework in the board policy is really getting the nuts and bolts of the administrative regulations. Just from a procedure of being able to change those things as they fly and not have to get the board policy and you get involved with EOLA or whatever you might be using, is that still what you're basically recommending? Yeah, so when you look at the, the policy framework itself, it discusses you know, a lot of times we look at things like complying with the statutory requirements of the revised school code with section 1248 or 1249, and then teacher evaluation is a great example because when we drafted those regulations in 2011 or 2012, as we're putting them together, the percentages have changed now, and you, you have had to change them on the fly. Uh, you know, obviously with fidelity and, and getting into the details on them, but um, it, it's not necessarily something that the board needs to be looking at every couple of weeks. It's a, it's a matter of the superintendent working with HR uh, curriculum and, and the building administrators to get those details in place in the administrative regulations. Um, with that being said, if you're putting in administrative regulations, you still want to make sure you're actually getting those those updated and, and put on your website or wherever you're putting them. Um, and I think we actually had this issue at one point in Bedford where we had the regulations, but we had to find a place to put them on the website because they weren't going in with Neola at that time. I think was it. Right. Um, and we actually had, I think at Van Buren, we had to give it for part of a lawsuit, give, give out information on the regulations that were passed on discipline and discharge. And that new superintendent came in and didn't know where they were at. <laughs> Ultimately, we ended up finding them, but they, were, they weren't placed anywhere. And so making sure you actually put them out there where everyone knows where all the information is is very important so that everyone has notice of it. Um, I won't go through all these, but li list items that, that can show adverse effect on these, these next two slides. Um, and uh, items that you're going to want to consider. So as you're going through your, your uh, evaluation models, these are, these are types of things that you're going to want to look at and say, okay, this is actually showing adverse effect or not showing adverse effect. Um, as I said earlier, lack of student growth may be used as evidence of adverse effect, but it's not determinative. Um, and that comes from uh, uh, the Tenure Commission said that um, back in 96 and back, said that back in 74. Um, so when you're looking at this stuff, the Tenure Commission has routinely said that's not enough to show, ad, or, excuse me, not enough to show adverse effect in order to uphold a discharge. So we want to make sure that we're looking at other factors and, and discussing why that person um, is, is problematic, if we see them as problematic, other than just their student growth data. Um, so again, just uh, some, some additional items here for, for showing uh, adverse effect um, and again, academic performance only is not necessarily going to be determinative, um, but you do want to demonstrate that you bring other factors in. So is it classroom environment that you're looking at? Is it planning and preparation? And how is that actually affecting your students or your community? So is it having an effect where planning and preparation suddenly is um, to, to the point where students have no idea what the actual lesson is for not only a day, but a week, a month. Subs can't come in and actually teach anything, and so ultimately it's affecting students 
which contributes to student growth, but it, it actually affects them on a day-to-day -day level as well. <clears throat> um, again, just a couple of different examples. Uh, in here um, as far as what adverse effect is. The big thing is that in a, in, an ineffective rating on your evaluation does not automatically equal a sustainable discharge under the Teacher Tenure Act and in front of the Tenure Commission. And so that's why we keep hampering and, and, and you know discussing the adverse effect that you gotta look at. And so if you're just saying, yep, this person's ineffective, and you know, Jeremy's example earlier where we didn't have some of the items laid out where there was observations, where there was discussion about how, discussion how they could improve, those types of things, um, you're most likely not gonna have a, a discharge in front of the Tenure Commission. Even though it is an arbitrary breach of standard, we still got to detail things and lay out how this person actually is a detriment to our students and our community. Um, just real quick, um, we've gone through the various models um, and if you look at the, this uh, slide here, um, when you look at number of examples for ineffective individuals that could potentially be in subordination um, but are, are somewhat neutral or 41, the number of examples that show adverse effect are only 18. Um, and number of examples that are, are difficult to show adverse effect are 27. So when we really kind of dive into these tools themselves, just actually checking something is not, not good enough. We need to actually be documenting what, you know, if we're in a position where we're saying someone's ineffective, we need to be documenting why we're saying that person's ineffective because the, the tools themselves don't lend themselves to a discharge. All the tools will say they are growth instruments. Okay. This is an example. These are growth instruments. If you think you're going to use a growth instrument to impact a discharge, the Tenure Commission has already ruled that being ineffective on the growth, on your um, observation instrument, does not equal adverse effect. You still have to show adverse effect. And this is the problem that you've got, is when you're, you're looking at so many of the examples on a growth instrument, there's no adverse effect on it. I mean, it might be, it might be a best practice, might be a good idea, might be preferred, it's not going to show adverse effect under a Michigan standard. I, th I think what you're getting at is going to be a combination of, um, under BB, it would be called rapport with parents and uh, on rapport with students. Um, generally, they are not going to um, have significant credible deference to anonymous surveys, okay? And so what, what we encourage when we're looking at um, tenure cases, generally our tenure cases, the people who we're charging frequently have more parent complaints than anybody else in the building, or sometimes than the rest of the people in the building. And so um, when, you, when you prepare your case, um, there's a little, just a little craft here. Um, when the parents come in and ask for a transfer, because generally these teachers have higher rates of transfer, you make them fill out 
and put something in writing. So you, you have something documented. If you ask them to go back and testify afterwards, they're not going to do it. Okay? So you want to build up documentation that are attributed to individuals that you can cross-examine. Um, so quick answer, no. It's, it's, it's nice fluff. Um, it's nice growth. It's going to have zero meaning in a discharge. All right, so there is group work that we, is actually a handout we, we gave you uh, for, for the items. And I think most of it comes from Danielson. Um, so handout here, the second piece of the handout. Does everybody have one? So okay. we're going to let you take that back to your districts and do that as a group exercise with everyone there. Because uh, we, we're just running short on time, so I know we want to get through uh, some of the other items in our, in our presentation. Um, and so if we have time at the end, we can walk through some of that. Um, but, but essentially what that is is a list of items and determining which are actually uh, adverse effect and, and which are not based on some of the factors that we discussed earlier. Um, and so I guess if, we, if we have time at the end, we'll get that. But I'm going to turn it over to uh, Mr. Blaha. Okay, good morning. One question I have um, for the group is how many of you have actually participated in any tenure hearing? One, two. So we have an experienced panel here, and um, in addition to us as lawyers who are trying to impart uh, what are some of the laws and make it a little less esoteric, but this panel is a valuable resource because they've been through it. So let me, let me just ask a couple of questions of our panel. Um, what would you be able to articulate to the group about a couple things? One is, how long of a process is it once, I mean, we're, we're talking about the buildup to all the case with through the evaluation and disciplines and parent complaints, et cetera. Once charges are filed, what can you tell the group about what to expect thereafter in terms of time, politics, board meetings, hearings? So we can break it down, but I, I, I'd like you to be able to explain some of it so they can have the uh, basis of what to project once you get into that process. Um, go ahead, John, you got the microphone. Yeah, it's, it's very time intensive. In my first experience with it, uh, I was a high school principal and seemed like uh, we had somebody from Bill's office. I, I volunteered to give them a desk within my office because uh, Amber was always there and interviewing students. But as we approached the actual hearing, uh, Bill provided uh, a packet of information for me, the Zopo. I mean, so, it, it became a, a nightmare for me because I spent an entire Easter break in my office and each question, I think I probably wrote a three to five page response in preparation for questions that we're going to be asked at trial, or at the not trial, but at the at the hearing. Uh, and I hated every minute of it 
until I was being cross-examined by you know, the MEA attorney at the time. Uh, but taking the time and, and being thorough and doing your homework, uh, that, that uh, brings success. Anything less than 110% from you know, your principals or whatever administrators are involved, probably a recipe for disaster. So now you're a superintendent and there's burdens on building administrators, um, which you work. Uh, I don't have time for this. I've got kids who've got you know, uh, knees and, uh, that are scraped. Uh, I've got all these other evaluations to do. Uh, I've done the paperwork. HR, superintendent, to do what needs to be done. Uh, what are you gonna, you got any comments you're gonna make to that building principal in that regard to prepare? If that was, I didn't obviously get that response from the two principals that I had involved, but uh, you may think you're involved, but when you're being cross-examined, I mean, that's what we're trying to prepare you for, is to be able to respond as you're being cross-examined. And uh, like I said, Looking back on it, I think the MEA attorneys are tame. If you end up in, in circuit court where they start uh, trying to make it about a lot of other things, uh, it's going to be much, much worse. And that's what I, I don't think sometimes, like I said, until you're in it, and it would have been very easy, you know, for me to say Easter break is my time, I'm not gonna sit in and, you know, spend 20 or 40 or 60 hours preparing for uh, the cross-examination. You know, I'm, I'm glad I did, and that's what I tried to impart to my people. But until you're, until you're through at one time, you don't realize the, the level of preparation that's needed. So the, the, the evaluative documents, the pre-post-observation meetings with the teacher, the day-to-day -day activities that you're engaged in as a building uh, administrator, or maybe oversight, presumably by central office, is one huge chunk of preparation. But then it's the defense of all those documents uh, in a hearing, uh, subject to scrutiny by many sources that requires that next set of preparation. And then the more work that's done in building those documents saves you that energy. You have to refresh your memories, of course, but the an analysis um, that you do up front, it saves the energy and time after. I have seen repeatedly uh, of, of the last several years is this, I'm, this is overwhelming, I'm burdened, um, I've done my paperwork, you guys handle it, and that's that you can't relinquish, or your people can't relinquish the responsibility uh, of, of the continued defense of it once the discharge process begins. So I don't know if anybody has anything to add on that, but uh, yeah, uh, Sharon. Um, I've lived through the old and the new, and as bad as the new is, the, war or the old was worse. The teacher got paid the entire time until there was a ruling, and they delayed it as much as they could because there was the possibility that the teacher was going to lose their job. It, the old system, it was almost guaranteed that it was going to be a year and the teacher was getting paid during that time. Um, so it is definitely bad now, but better than what it was. So the old system was tenure at the board, at the board level, a hearing, and there was a hearing at the circuit court level, and the court of appeals, there were so many layers. Um, 
Now uh, the circuit court's been removed and the board hearing's been removed, has been removed. It's a, uh, board decides to proceed, then there's a tenure uh, hearing in front of an administrative law judge, and then um, it goes to the tenure commission for their decision. Does anybody know how long they get paid? Uh, this was brought up uh, from the point in time of tenure charges to the point in time of administrative law judge statutorily. Yeah, six months is if they follow the statutes, and it used to be the only one administrative law judge, now there's um, two, there's one retired uh, or went someplace else. They're not meeting the statutory timeline, so we're gonna end up paying longer. So be prepared for that in terms of the money component. Sharon, you had something too. Well, I just wanted to comment because um, I think what may help um, people really conceptualize this is that the slam dunk cases where it's really easy, those all settle. It's usually uh, when you get into um, the close ones, the close calls, you know, where it's gonna be really fact-based, it's gonna be evidence-heavy, it's going to be reliant on testimony for um, other, uh, others in the district. Um, sometimes you're dealing with an individual who um, isn't mentally well. And if you're dealing with someone who isn't mentally well and they're not realizing, uh, really aren't able to be self-reflective and understand their own position, those are the ones that are, they take a lot of time prepping uh, the people that are going to be called to testify. We're in the middle of a case now that I can't tell you, we've probably been going on for a year before we even filed charges just out of safety for other employees who were um, offering testimony. So those are the kinds of um, intensely involved uh, situations and we're now even, we have quite a path ahead of us even yet, so. You mentioned uh, you know, at least a year, there was a, some of the technicality in the law that six months was, might be ample time to improve. Jordan, who was both, um, you know, has been on both sides, with the employer and on the MEA side. Do you, what, what, what kind of comment might you have about the duration of time it takes to build the case? Sure. Well, first, I, and and we're kind of getting off of teacher evaluation and uh, statutory issues. So I, I guess first, and for 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 everyone's sake, and Gary referenced this very briefly. There's two types of forms and two types of issues we're talking here. First is layoff and recall under the revised school code, and you guys are talking about circuit court. That's typically going to be in, in a circuit court. So that's when we talk about a judge and a jury. It's about what we started the initial presentation on, is about laying off people via the statute under the revised school code. That's what's gonna give them the ability, typically with the plaintiff's attorneys getting involved, challenging, the things that um, we've been talking about the last few hours. So that's layoff and recall. That's that's going to be circuit court with a circuit court judge that doesn't practice school law, with a plaintiff's attorney that doesn't practice school law, and potentially in front of a circuit court jury. Do you agree with all that? Okay. Now what we're kind of getting into is is the misconduct of teachers or getting rid of bad teachers, right? Not using the teacher eval or the evaluation tool for layoff and recall. We're talking just about bad teachers. What do we do with teachers that probably don't need to work here anymore? That's 
the purview of the, te of the Michigan Teacher Tenure Commission. In that venue, you're going to be in front of an administrative law judge that hears these types of cases all the time. And that's going to be the person making the initial decision. And the MEA is typically going to be involved in that with a lawyer that hears these, that, that um, represents people all the time with that. So there's two different forums. And uh, when, when, when I started, if we're looking at getting or, or addressing the problematic employee that might not work for us anymore, I would prefer to be in the tenure commission in front of people that hear these cases all the time, in front of people that uh, uh, represent both sides all the time, there's predictability there, right? You can predict what's going to happen. You can predict what the other side's going to do. It's the wild, wild west in, you know, Oakland County or Macomb County or Wayne County Circuit Court. You don't know what anyone's going to do. So I guess that's my first point. And then the second point to your question, Bill, of, of how long to prepare, and this is where you've already referenced it, you know, principals get frustrated, and I hear, I've heard this an, a number of times in my career. I did the evaluation, all, all the information's right there, that this teacher's gotta go, they're bad, they're bad for kids, right? How many times have you heard, they're bad for kids, they gotta go, you guys have to do something. Um, and I always have counseled people that, well, we will, we're gonna do something, but it's not a firecracker, you don't like the match, and or light the wick and let it blow. This is gonna be a slow burn. This is gonna be a process. This is gonna take some work. And if we wanna do it right, do we wanna do it fast or do we wanna do it right? Doing, and typically those are not uh, two things you can do at the same time. Um, so what I've seen, the people that have done it best, both representing teachers on the MEA side and then working with people are the people that s build their case slowly. You know, if, if it's a teacher that has some problems, like um, I believe John mentioned, putting them in, on I, in an IDP, or as Howard mentioned, let's see if they improve. If they don't improve, let's start building that paper trail. And then the next year, put them on another IDP, give them another ineffective rating. All of a sudden, now you've got this pattern, and you've got more facts that are on your side. And so I've seen the best case to be most successful, and this is where you wanna be. It can take anywhere from two to three years to really nail somebody down where you're very comfortable saying, I'm, I'm, I'm very comfortable taking this case forward. And, and I, just to reinforce that point, I think, in my experience too, that um, by letting time work to your advantage, uh, not only builds up the evidence that's needed, but uh, it, it requires patience, but at the same time, um, the, the association or the representation can help counsel the teacher out so we're in a better uh, position to effectuate a resignation than go through the long process. So, uh, anything else, Tony, you want to add? Just one thing. Is know your tenure. Know your tenure commission. Know their past history. Know what kind of decisions they made. Especially if you have a tough case that may be on the fence. Know where their, that commission's coming from. Uh, know how they've decided in the past. And it gives you an idea of what kind of evidence that you actually have to supply to get, you, to get a favorable decision. That's a good point. I always know who the decision makers are on uh, their backgrounds, yep, and tailor accordingly the message. So uh, the only thing else I would add is you're in the process, uh, there's going to be expense involved, you're going to have board scrutiny, um, and it's not going to go away. So there's FOIA requests that can happen, you can have teacher supporters showing up at the board meetings, teacher supporters at the, at the hearing level, in addition to all the work you've done to uh, try to effectuate the outcome. Uh, of either supporting a layoff recall or the termination. So this, this 
next portion, and um, a lot of this you can be able to take a look at, uh, you know, and study after. But these are ideas to e either comport with a law uh, on your regulations and policies to update them, or add some uh, some items in there that will help effectuate an outcome you desire um, that's separate from the law that we think would withstand the arbitrary and capricious standard challenge. So what there should be two primary purposes in mind when looking at your current regulations is to um, it, it provide due process to teachers so they know what they're going to be evaluated on and secondly make sure you're in compliance with the law. And we know now that uh, the courts are scrutinizing these uh, decisions that are being made, and as a result, we have to withstand the scrutiny by a court challenge. And uh, so, Summers 2 requires the fair, transparent rule uh, and that um, you give ample opportunity to improve before we can lay somebody off. In fact, Southfield, do you guys have anything to, you wanna impart to the group about where you're at? The court deferred it back because they, they, is my understanding, that they deferred it back for a further discovery, so there's depositions underway, and what do you expect? Any comments you guys want to add? You know, I think one of the lessons that we've we've quickly learned, myself and uh, Dr. Green, our new superintendent, is the importance of, of uh, process and discipline. Um, what we probably will do is is kind of see uh, what, if anything, we learn from discovery, um, and then we'll have a decision to make. Um, uh, this case is is consuming uh, precious resources. Um, it, it's been around for a number of years, um, and the thing that I think Dr. Green and I don't I don't want to speak for her on this, but I think the thing that she really wants to do um, is to obviously improve our evaluation process and bring it more in line with what's required under the law um, to have a stronger relationship between central office and our buildings um, to make sure that our principals understand um, the ingredients of a good evaluation and to understand that there are challenges that may be mounted and to have confidence in our process and that they followed our process. Um, I think that Dr. Green told me yesterday that one of the things she wants to spend her first year on is improving um, and process, practice and process, um, and making sure that you know there's really sort of no, no slip between the lip and the cup in terms of what she expects and, and how our principals um, and administrators need to perform. So, you know, this is a painful, uh, it's a painful learning lesson, but it's one that we uh, hope not to repeat ever again. <laughs> now, I was just going to say the importance of documentation. That was our biggest lesson from all of our litigation, the importance of documentation, that it's objective and not subjective, and um, not relying on people's memories because people transition and many documents are missing. So the mystery of the outcome of Southfield case yet remains because discovery, depositions, further uh, 
that, that needs to further occur before you even get to a mediation and a, and a potential resolution or if it's going to go to a hearing, but the judge allowed it to go. Um, you know, and I'd say not only in documentation, but the quality of documentation, because you can go through a checklist and do the IDPs, do the mid-year evaluations, et cetera, if they aren't correlated with, like a scripting is not correlated with the outcomes on an observation or an evaluation, how, does, how are we going to prove that the teacher understood? You know, just simply doing the work in a checklist fashion and think you can supply it with as, uh, or improve upon it through your testimony um, is going to be a problem and it's a challenge. Um, the absence of discipline uh, creates difficulties on proceeding and progressing on a case. The difficulties um, of not having either parent or student complaints is also enhanced. Those things help strengthen a case, um, and of course the adverse effect when we're talking about evaluations has been and continues to be a burden of proof that we, we have to show uh, by a preponderance of evidence. So, And so you're trying to fix a problem, and the rules are changing, and they have been changing since 2011, 2012. So at some point, we're going to have to probably think about making a business decision in terms of how we deal with the current risk while looking forward and improving our practices and processes. And that's what Gary mentioned about the risk management. And so, you know, as we, I, and that goes to Jordan's point too, we're better off slowing down, having some patience, build up the documentation, um, try to effectuate a resignation through strength as opposed to hurry up and have a false sense of security. That's where we run the risk of not having insurance coverage and, you know, the, um, I mean, potentially a theoretically bankrupting a district, certainly impacting your careers. So, um, okay. I'm going to just hit some points as we've covered a lot of these to see if there's something new. This is, if you're skimming along with me, this is, um, these things are patterned based upon the law, rigorous, fair, transparent. We've talked about the Southfield case where there was evidence of not having a transparent because there wasn't feedback given um, or there was underhanded rationale for an outcome. So those are going to be scrutinized. Um, if you remember with the, when the, like after Columbine, for example, just by analogy, where there was zero tolerance in the schools, well, courts started to say zero tolerance doesn't equal zero common sense. We are now starting to see with the reforms in 2011, as the court starts scrutinizing what school officials are doing, um, we are going to start seeing more and more decisions that documentation, fairness, due process, um, ample opportunity to improve timelines, et cetera, are, we're going to revert back to what has been those basic precepts of um, good justice. These are the BB standards. You know that that's a definition of an incompetent teacher by law. That's, that was a BB case. That was the name of the tenure commission. So we have to prove, based on they codified it in the school code, what an incompetent teacher is. You don't know the subject. You can't impart the subject. You don't have classroom management. You don't have rapport with teachers and staff. You can't withstand the restraints of teaching, and then this adverse effect. So our 
regs, the administrative regs should codify this as a basis for which everyone should follow. It's in the school code, put it in the reg, and um, so this extra factor, significant relevant accomplishments, uh, relevant special training, those uh, should also be mentioned. Um, you know that observations under the law, which can be incorporated in the reg, two, at least one has to be uh, unannounced. Uh, you can skip one if you got an effective or highly effective teacher over a pattern of three years. You can start going every other year uh, if three consecutive highly effectives for an annual year-end evaluation. So there is some ability to relax the standards. If you have a problematic teacher, and this is what I think the panel was trying to impart too, if you have a problematic teacher, it's just don't do the bare minimums. Get a second evaluator in um, you know, and do frequently more observations leading up to, in all likelihood, a suspension or placement of administrative leave of the teacher if it's culminated with good data. This is a problem that we're seeing with the checklist. This has been in the law before, it's still in the law. When you got an IDP, you know, a teacher has to have an IDP if they're in the first year of probation or any other teacher who's minimally or ineffective, that make sure that the document, that the IDP um, documents on an evaluation show whether or not they met those goals. If, if it is silent, there's going to be ready attack that, um, that uh, they met the goal or it's right for dissension. They remove some of those things automatically presumed satisfactory, some of those things in the law, but it's right for challenge. So again, quality of documentation, make sure whether or not they assess those and whether it's stages, there's ability to expand those boxes to add comments. Right, Sharon? Okay. Yeah. Um, are you going to discuss at all about the uh, aspect of you know, three AGs in a row and skip a year and anything like that? That was yeah. That's what I was just referring to. Oh, okay. Yeah. What's your opinion on that? Uh, it's allowed by law. Um, I you know if and I guess that's a district decision on whether or not they want to relax the standard. The consistency obviously is a concern. You could have one building everybody's wonderful, highly effective. You know, and then another building that's more rigorous, and um, so the other build, other one building, elementary building, is for hypothetically is skipping evaluation as everybody's highly effective, right? Yeah. And along those lines, I mean, I think some of the principals are the evaluators are starting to think that if they use the same terminology with individuals, um, if they use the same terminology with the individuals and in, during their evaluation, uh, then it starts to take on a flavor of it. It all starts to sound the same, and they may be confusing that with internal validity. And I just wanted to see what the group may think about that. You want to be consistent, but you want to use the same descriptors all the time, you know. And yeah, just not the canned descriptors. Um, I, that's another thing that's problematic, or a phrased word. If you don't provide examples that support how you reached a conclusion with those descriptors, that doesn't show clearly where the teacher was deficient. Not only for the teacher to um, improve, but also for you to justify in a hearing or publicly, because all this is foyable, why you gave that teacher that mark. That's so if we per, a perfunctory, I'm lifting this descriptor to put in this rubric to justify a minimally effective is, in my view, insufficient. Howard, didn't you also, because uh, I think 
when you changed evaluation tools and you had some individuals that were highly effective for three years in a row, didn't you put in a system that even though you didn't go through a formal evaluation, you still had something either noted in their file or you had the principals at least go in and do some sort of observation? here and how many of your administrators have actually had training in how to write an IDP? How many do you think your administrators and you need training in writing IDPs? There you go. <laughs> yep, sounds like another seminar. Okay. So we've talked a lot about uh, student growth, and um, and, I, and as Gary mentioned, uh, we're going to be providing a more in-depth presentation on that. Uh, Buzz Brown uh, is actually going to uh, participate. Um, Buzz, do you want to just take a minute or two and what uh, what your company? Oh, uh, thanks, Bill. Um, I'm assuming you all got that email yesterday from the State Department of Education that uh, they worked with SAS to come up with a method to uh, print uh, evaluator scores for the district, the building, the teacher. I kind of shuddered when I saw that email. Um, it made it sound like it was a top-down problem. Um, you've heard the expression, you know, to a hammer, everything is a nail. To Microsoft Excel, everything's a spreadsheet. To SAS, everything is a math problem. Um, calculating educator evaluations uh, based on SGP is a bottom-up problem. And it's a data problem that begins with your roster. Um, your roster was designed to put students in a room with a teacher every hour, every day, every week of the year. It was not designed to do three-year growth trends on student growth percentages. So <clears throat> what we've discovered, virtually every district, we have to cleanse the data, as we say. And you're going to find that there's a lot of flaws in your roster that first has to be adjusted for every single teacher before you could calculate that score for a teacher. And then you can roll it up to the building, to the district. And it's kind of a segue into the October session. but. Little things like NWEA. You do not upload student or teacher IDs with your data. So they're assuming that every term you've uploaded NWEA data, the teacher's name was spelled exactly the same. Rarely has that been the case. Um, the state does not store rosters with the MSTEP data. So you have to be able to provide historic, at least three years, rosters with your MSTEP data. Uh, we've had districts that have not been able to do that, and we reconstruct historic rosters using, let's say, NWEA data where it is stored 
to get that data. Um, student IDs. Are you using your UIC ID? Are you using your student software ID? Are you making them up using a combination of first name, last name, which some districts have done? Um, to be consistent, you have to have the same user ID across STAR, Dibbles, <coughs> MSTEP, NWEA, whatever it is that you're using. That's just some of the uh, ideas of the things that have surfaced when we started to analyze multiple years worth of historic roster data before you could even begin to calculate an individual teacher's score. That, as again, that's sort of a segue for October. Well, and it also shows you the difficulties with student growth, the minimal compliance, and the likelihood of potential litigation. I've got a case pending um, that I'm really struggling with, with a three years in a row minimally effective teacher, but they empowered the teacher to the teachers to um, determine the student growth pre-post test, and if there's any improvement, basically. Um, then they, they can be highly effective. So you got minimally effective performance, highly effective student growth each of those years, no discipline, no parental complaints, good relationship with the kids, but the administrators are saying, uh, we wouldn't want my kid in that class. They're not challenged, they're not, uh, there's not enough rigor, there's not the correlation between what's the, the purpose of the lesson and how it ends up. I don't know, I'm, um, but the stu stu <laughs> Student growth um, is is obviously ripe. That one is just it's giving me a headache. Uh, Mid-year progress reports, you know we have to do those now uh, for uh, if they're less than effective. It should be in your regulations so these perform a checklist and you measure uh, whether or not they um, are meeting their goals and what they got to do and what supports are in place. Yes, sir. So mid-year progress for anyone less than effective, they're mandatory for first-year teachers. First year to your district. Okay, so if, no matter how many years they have anywhere else, when they get to your district for a first year, yeah. you have to give them a mid-year ID. Yeah, unless you automatically grant them tenure, and if they had tenure in another district, but I don't know anybody that does no, that. Right. Okay. Yeah. So first year in your district, no matter what the prior year. Right. Excellent. Yep. Okay. Um, they an IDP. Uh, we've, we've talked about that. That those are needed. Um, you know, again for the similar rationale, first year, and anybody who's less than effective. Why not put these in the regulations? It's, it's a requirement by the law. Um, Wait, I'm sorry, you said IDP is the same standard? First same year, standard, first yeah. Year and then, and then less than, yeah, and two year for a ten, you know, uh, up to two years for a tenure teacher, previous tenure. There's a, uh, there is a conflict between tenure. There is a conflict between tenure and the revised school code on that. And so the revised school code says that you're going to have IDPs for all probationary teachers. Okay, so I mean, I know what the Tenure Act says, but <laughs> it's a bit, so anyway, go ahead. Yeah, well, actually, that's a good point. Thanks for clarifying that. All, each year of probation, you need an IDP. Yes. So, um, okay, and these are now become some of the, uh, the, additional items that are uh, outside of the law that could um, help in terms of, this is like the Atherton model uh, that's in the policy. So for example, all right, we, got, we had the law. A rating of ineffective in any one domain or dimension shall result in an annual year-end evaluation rating of ineffective. 
So an, a rating of ineffective or anything in a subcategory, the regulation for the district would be they are overall rating as ineffective. And you could do the same thing with minimally effective. You can do the same thing with if they're disciplined. And that's what these next set of slides show as far as examples. Uh, if you go ahead, John, because well, when we we did that, and that was based on my principals going to Charlotte Danielson training. Charlotte herself was the presenter, and she made that statement that if you're ineffective in any one of the domains, then your overall rating uh, was ineffective. And, and we bought into that as far as the domains. But the curveball right now with the student growth and that being so subjective and now going to, to 40%, you know, I'm, I'm not so sold on that statement right now as far as, you know, if, you're, if it's a student growth and you're ineffective, should your overall be ineffective? So, I mean, we're evolving as, as we go, not necessarily holding steadfast to that standard. John, generally we would look at that on the domains on Charlotte Danielson and not on the student growth for the very reason you're talking about, yeah. The, the other thing is that when we talk about having a, a rubric, this is what, not necessarily this one, but we want it to be written out and predictable and shown what the results are. You don't want to have people be looking at doing numerical averages or numerical whatever that they can challenge one component of it. Judges can understand something that's in writing very easily. Uh, you want to keep that if you possibly can. So these are the examples so those were how you could do different gradations with the type of uh, subcategories on an evaluation to get you a conclusion of overall effective. This one, uh, effectiveness, and this one deals with um, if there was previous discipline that you could come to similar conclusions that um, you know, somebody might not achieve anything higher than a minimally effective rating if there have been disciplined. So if you are in a layoff situation, these regulations would apply to help be a tiebreaker. That could be a form of tiebreaker. Another form of tiebreaker is if and they're in the same band, that tenure or seniority could be the tiebreaker. Um, this, is, this is based upon some of the performance criteria that are tiebreakers. as objective as possible. And so, you, you know, tenure seniority is pretty objective. Uh, discipline, you know, I guess there could be arguments if they put rebuttals, which they're entitled to do under Buller Palicki to their evaluation or rebuttals to their discipline. And, uh, but it does give you a basis to have tiebreakers uh, and distinguishing, and distinguishing facts. John? Yeah, Howard, I believe you'd put some of this stuff in your regs. Have you actually had to use it as far as discipline and actually how it affects an overall evaluation rating or no? Yes. And was there any conversation with the, the union or anything else that took place? A little bit, but uh, the attendance, we, attendance and discipline we use as overriding factors for HR There's been some discussions, but it's, it's been about three or four years we've been doing it that way, and uh, they're getting used to it. And you talked a little bit about attendance and finding those safe havens with FMLA and leave of absences and things like that. 
Don't, don't you have like about 15 exceptions listed in your attendance yeah, stuff? Okay. Okay, this is this is an example. If um, it's so you got uh, uh, rating within a domain or dimension rating within or disciplinary action that could impact that one. Or this is an example: a tiebreaker could be failure to meet an IDP goal or goals, or a com combination of these. So there. I don't know if Gary, if you wanted to mention anything about this philosophy about probationary teachers and uh, yeah, some districts actually place this in their um, in their teacher handbooks because they want to reinforce to the um, to the principals that we don't want you to evaluate based on potential. We want you to evaluate that person as they are this year, and frequently principals have an issue with that. I mean, they'll come back and they'll say, well, Gary, you're making me give away all my draft choices. And I'm saying, this is not fantasy football, friend. Um, this is evaluation we have to defend. And so some districts do state that. Um, also, when they have questions from the public as to where their evaluations on their probationary teachers are and why they're not as high, or high as their tenured teachers. And it is because they are newer employees. They are good employees, but they are still learning. One of, the, um, one of the sweet spots that I um, just wanted to, to mention and get in and, and, and cover is that if you have central office control on your minimally effective and ineffective, we have an 85% resignation rate over two years with our clients, okay? So as long as you are procedurally following it, folks, at least with our clients, 85% resignation rate. That's where you want to be, folks, where people are making their own decisions and you're helping them. Go ahead. So and when I guess one other point, Gary, is I know I'll give you a couple examples. You've got some best practices to wrap this up. Uh, is like Jordan, your point, when the, this last thing about the probationary teachers that, oh, the principal wants to get rid of a, a problematic tenure teacher on an easy framework, but keep the young, well, I think it was your point, that keep the young, the new, the, you know, the one that's contributing. And this uh, kind of checks that, I think, that type of uh, policy about probationary teachers to be realistic. So it's worth considering. It seems to be a controversial type of statement to put in the reg, uh, but it may be of some benefit. And I wonder, Bill, if we could perhaps, because of a time, ask the panel for any final um, conversations because we're running low on time. I just wanted to uh, comment on the con your point about um, we may have principals who have a lot of hope for a new teacher and are willing to look at that teacher differently, regardless of what they're doing, than the tenured teacher that you really felt has been underperforming for a long time and kind of how we look at that teacher and what we're willing to um, attribute to that teacher. But, uh, and I, I know that everyone has probably gone um, into their instrument in depth and feel very comfortable about how they're using that instrument. 
Uh, one of our big pushes as a district in the use of Danielson has been how to understand the uh, application of Danielson as a moment in time versus identifying and categorizing, classifying teachers. And I'm sure everyone is doing that as well. But just reinforcing that uh, we're getting away from using the evaluation to say this is a good teacher, this is a bad teacher, um, and using the um, training with Danielson to understand that you may be a good teacher, but when I was in your classroom, what I saw happening, this action rates um, basic in Danielson. This activity rates unsatisfactory in Danielson. This particular questioning exercise is distinguished in Danielson. And using what they're seeing as the indicator for how that falls and how we understand and interpret what's happening in that classroom, when we get into that, we're really able then to um, see novice teachers as basic in what they're doing in the classroom. And it helps in the conversation to show where we want that teacher to be. And in the long run, as we're understanding what we're seeing from novice teachers, it does help us get away from um, oversimplifying and overclassifying on uh, kind of where we expect that person to be or whether they think that's a good person or a bad person. So that has been really helpful to us um, in our training plan, all of our Danielson training. We use, uh, we subscribe to all of the online videos and we watch them as a group. And uh, we um, come to much of our own learning bouncing off each other rather than having individuals separately and independently going through those. And uh, we've been able to, and I've been in those and sessions with them and talking through what that means in their classroom and their observations. And so that has been helpful to us when we use the instrument. We've also um, really relied very heavily on Danielson's original um, framing of her rubric, focusing on unsatisfactory, basic, um, proficient and distinguished to break the relationship that we automatically assume in terms of ineffective, minimally effective, effective, and highly effective that ties us into calculations that are difficult for us to defend or protect ourselves from. So once we've um, delinked those, we have a lot more freedom to say, okay, now that we are looking at that, how are we going to describe ineffective using these particular domains? And then we have a lot more control over those than just subdomain rating markings. So those have been some ways, just in practice, that we've, we've dove a little deeper in controlling it. Excellent. John? Just out of curiosity, how many are using Danielson here? Just about everybody. Um, you can't say if you have a teacher that is not doing what you are, believe that he or should be should be doing, you can't say oops anymore. You can't say I'm sorry. 
it hurts too many kids and it's going to cost you a lot of money so yeah you, you need to be careful right from the interview point when you hire through the process of the evaluation hopefully you look for a person that likes kids and that's what you want in the classroom let them otherwise go work in a library or write books or something or do the testing but try to try to get the one in the classroom that likes kids I just want to emphasize again, get your administrators together, especially if they're in the same building, so they have the same definition of what highly effective is, effective, minimally effective, and ineffective, because there's a time where you may ask your assistant principal to go into that classroom and see what they think. If you have different definitions of what the measures are, uh, you're in trouble and it should be district-wide everybody should be thinking because when someone's hired as a junior high teacher this year doesn't mean they're a junior high teacher next year they may be in the high school and so you, you really have to communicate much more than you ever did before one thing that uh, was taught to me at a very early age in administration by my greatest mentor and he he pled with me okay don't always be about the administrative side actually sit down listen to what the other side in whatever group it is because sometimes they have some very 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 legitimate points and whether it's a discipline situation or an evaluation situation we would like to believe that our administration administrative team are, are doing things you know with fidelity but a lot of times that isn't the case and I think that sometimes we automatically jump into defense mode or defending our administrators because that's the side we're on uh, but sometimes you know actually looking at a, at a grievance or listening to what those people have to say uh, you know that's all you need right there and you know you have a loser on your hands and you know that's when we need to make it right and do what's right any final questions? Time is expiring. If no final questions, Carl. Just a couple of things in closing. And if, um, if you've got a, a big pit in your stomach right now, uh, and it's not because you're hungry, I apologize for that. Um, but we're from the Metro Bureau. We're here to help. Um, and um, I just want to mention that um, Buzz Brown, the gentleman in the back who you heard from real briefly, um, is instrumental in developing a tour to help uh, a tool uh, through uh, through his work at Munetrix uh, to help through this. He's partnered with uh, with Collins and Blaha uh, to present our next seminar. So look for the uh, announcements on that coming soon. It'll be in October, Greg, or November. October, right? In October. October 23rd. Um, I also want to mention that, um, you know, uh, we have a wonderful panel here, and what we wanted to be sure to leave you with is that there are school districts that have managed this. And whether you feel like you're one of those, or, and whether you feel you're the only one in your district, 
who feels like you're one of those, um, are two distinctly different things. But we have some experts here. Um, we have other experts in the room. And what we do is we bring people together to help solve problems like this. This is something that requires our management and will for the foreseeable future. So uh, if we could give a nice, warm Metro Bureau thank you to our panel and to our attorneys for their hard work. More to come. And more importantly, uh, Greg is going to come up and tell you how you can help us to make sure that we continue to help you. Thank you, Carl. Um, as Carl passes out the, uh, the, the seminar uh, survey, we'd like you to fill it out and really um, uh, give us the feedback about what you thought about the, uh, the seminar and how we can help you in the, in the future. And um, please take the time to do that. And, and with that said, I'd just like to remind all of you, we've heard a lot about risk today, process, and, and data. We would certainly encourage all of you to bring a team back for the October 23rd where um, we'll really get into the nitty-gritty, not only involving the process and methodology, but Buzz will provide some mechanisms to really help you cleanse the data that you may, uh, you may need in order to uh, support your position uh, in the school district if you go down the litigation route. So with that said, thank you very much. And once again, thank you to the panel, and thank you to our team of attorneys.